going to be in the middle of me talking right now. So it's going to look really awkward for the viewer because we just went live and I'm in the middle of explaining these guys. Hey, I'm just going to click go live. Welcome. Let us know where you're from in the comments. Make sure you can see us and this is working. I say I see zero viewers, but I'm pretty sure there's more than zero. This thing is usually a little late to uh, count the viewers. So cool. Welcome, Matt. Matt Smith from Good Soil. Noah uh, Sargent, is that, did I pronounce your last name correctly? That's correct. Oh, perfect. Um, community forum member. He's, he's part of our uh, our cool little community, Patreon or YouTube supporter. So uh, thank you very much, Noah, for your support. And obviously, thank you to everybody who's been watching the channel, supporting the channel. Um, cool. Matt, welcome back, man. Uh, good to see you again. How you been? Thanks so much. I've been really, really good. I think you've had a string of kind of like absolute home run interviews this week. You know, you had you had Gary and Alexandra and then you had uh, Chuck Cook and James Dauma. And so welcome everyone to probably the most disappointing Farzad uh, podcast or YouTube <laughs> video of the week. Yeah, I might be in agreement with there. You hit some big hitters this week and I, I still need to catch up on your last one. But yeah, I'm excited for this conversation and hopefully we'll every have once in a while you got to lower the bar, right? <laughs> <laughs> you guys are crazy, man. You got you guys are not giving yourselves enough credit, man. Get out of here. Every 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 single one of these conversations I love. It's going to be a great conversation. Yeah, you guys are crazy. But thank you, dude. That's I actually had so much I felt like such a um like a, a observer for those two conversations because what I what I noticed was uh, for the first one with Gary and Alexandra, they both are so well spoken, and they can just they can just talk intelligently for what seems like hours about anything. And I'm just like, listen, I'm like, holy shit, I'm learning so much, and I barely had to do anything. So I'm like, how how do I get to benefit from this thing where I can just sit and watch two people talk? And then the same exact thing happened yesterday with with James and Chuck, <laughs> and I'm just sitting there. I'm like, man. Like this is incredible. I think I think that's what's really cool about having that sort of dynamic with more than just a, like a like like two people. Like I, I really enjoy those as well. But it's very interesting having uh, two different people that are very well versed on the topics and almost having like a self moderating debate where I I barely have to do really anything. I'm just listening very intently to see okay where do I maybe need to push the conversation? Where do we need more clarification? But I'm finding out that if you just have two people that are very intelligent, they just they just know how to talk. You just sit there and listen like everybody else. I oh for sure. So I don't even know if I deserve the credit to be honest. It's just <laughs> it's the folks that came well, on, you know. Honestly, I think you I think you definitely do because um, from a host's perspective, not everybody knows how to give and take like that. They try to make it about them, right? And, and it's not about you. <laughs> it's about the conversation, and and you do that really well as you make it about that conversation. Yeah, I would agree. Like, I think the thing that is a huge credit to you is you didn't step on the conversation. Like, you know, every once in a while you, you kind of poked in, but you let the conversation flow in a way that I thought was really intelligent. So, uh, no, th those were just great. Oh, Although when I saw the 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 James Dalma Chuck Cook one drop yesterday, I was like, oh, two and a half hours and I've got to watch this. Like, <laughs> not only because I'm coming on your channel, but just as like, I've, this is like really interesting information. And like those two together is just like magic. So uh, it, it was really good. Yeah, man. Yeah, those two are great. I actually, I the one thing that I've been uh, struggling to find time to do sometimes because it's just kind of like tedious is creating chapters for these things. Because I, I wish there was a mm -hmm. better way when you do a live stream or even when you record something. So, because it's hard for me to sit down, it's like, oh, this is a chapter. Like I want to be engaged into the conversation, right? So I got to go back, rewatch the whole thing, and make sure that the chapter is going at the right time. Um, I was thinking about doing clips. I was doing clips before of like taking like. Uh, little snippets and throwing them up uh, for people to see that might draw them into the, like the fuller 
conversation to, to save him time. But I still haven't decided how to do that because I, I did it before. It's just, but it, it didn't seem like it was too helpful for a lot of people. It seemed like it was more effort than whatever value it was creating. So I'm like, you know, I don't know. You might even ask the community if, you know, someone who's an avid listener or watcher, like, wants to do that send it your way patron, i would love that you know on discord something like that you know and hand anybody out there hit up for <laughs> or just like literally just you guys can create the channel and just do it yourself like i don't have to get it i don't have to get the credit for it if you all find that it's helpful to take a piece of my conversations and post it as your own i don't care like it's as long as it's helpful for the community whatever you know i, I have seen so. on a couple channels like somebody will just post in the comments like because because for youtube all you have to do is type like the timestamp and then a title so if anybody watching wanted to timestamp these i'm sure then far as i could go and adjust it in the in the in the sure. description and that would make it work automatically so maybe just crowdsource the chapters it's probably a good idea yeah that would help as well someone's gonna create a highlight of all the awkward moments of today like uh we don't know the answer to that one <laughs> That's fine too. Like so the, it's entertaining. Who cares? Thing trip videos. Have you ever seen those? Like there was one with uh, Jordan Be Peterson, like ripping into Lex Friedman, telling him what an idiot he was recently. Yeah. He just like edits this all out of context. It's it's really really well done. He's done a bunch with Joe Rogan too. It's uh, yeah. Those are those are gold. Good. I definitely want to give a shout out to Alexandra. Obviously, she was one of our uh, one of our um, guests this this week popular popular member of our community it has been blowing up like crazy here lately in the last uh, couple of weeks just she's uh putting a lot of heat on smp and moody's and uh it's, it's uh it's bringing a lot of attention to that which is great and i also want to give a big shout out to uh to kathy k kathy k was uh she donated a hundred bucks on the uh, first stream with gary and alexandra and, and and she said for gary's new mic so we actually used that hundred bucks and we got uh gary some equipment so thank you kathy Thank you. The reason why Gary sounded good on the last one is because of you. <laughs> so thank that's, you very much. It's funny. For like that. a year and a half ago, I actually had an interview lined up with Gary. I think it was the first one he might have ever done on YouTube, and we just had to cancel it because he didn't even have any camera whatsoever, like not even like a built-in webcam or anything like that. And I was like, "How is this possible?" <laughs> so we scheduled it a couple <laughs> days later. So Gary's got a, a long and storied history of uh, of technical issues, but. It's great to see Alexandra awesome. on here too, blowing up. I mean, I've been a fan of hers for months or if not like a year, probably she, she was posting these, you know, ARK invest, you know, like, uh, things for a long time. And, and the, the way that she had formatted, it was, I just thought really, really good. And so I was like, I never understand why she doesn't have any followers. And then of course, like now she just blows up and is like a huge, you know, kind of rising star. And it's just, it's great to see people kind of get the credit like that, that they, uh that, that they deserve and there's a couple other accounts too that i've been noticing lately I'm like how do you only have 200 followers there's so I, I think there's there's probably more to be done on that front and, and we're gonna i think try to host a couple on, on good soil pretty soon nice that'd be awesome um i'm getting a comment on on the comment section that says my audio and video is a bit off matt is it just you that's seeing that no are you seeing a delay between my my voice and my microphone as well i am seeing you out of sync myself yeah okay cool so this is what i'm gonna do so um maybe matt talk about or here do this now i'm gonna step away for 30 seconds i think i know what the issue is now that i've looked at something on the side um maybe we can kick it off with the markets and how they're performing once i'm back i'll throw up the chart so maybe matt uh, talk us through what you're seeing in the markets for the last couple of days and y'all can carry the conversation for 30 seconds and i'll be back very very shortly go for it yeah i mean it, clearly this this week in particular we've seen a pretty nice reversal of uh you know the, the losses that we'd had the last you know two weeks really 
Um, it's not completely clear to me what's driving that. I mean, that there definitely has been some very good news on the Ukrainian front. Um, it's possible that that's you know lifting um, you know expectations a little bit. Uh, you know, I, I kind of think that there's going to be continued awareness or, or recognition that the inflationary forces, which is like public enemy number one for equity markets, uh, that that the inflation is is coming down a bit. So I, I kind of think that that's probably the the bigger issue. But I think just looking, you know, broadly across macro, whether it's Ukraine, whether it's prices, um, there's just um, a little bit more optimism than, than we had seen. I also kind of thought the sell off that we saw in, in August was a little bit overdone. Um, I've seen a couple charts lately of just like an extreme amount of both shorts and um, puts that have come into the market. So like comparable to levels seen during the 08 recession, if you kind of adjust it for uh, like for market cap basis of the overall market by then. Um, it, and to me, that's just like a, a pretty clear signal that um, like we're at kind of maximum hedging levels. And so to the extent people either exit their shorts or uh, put some of the cash that they may have sidelined back into the market, uh, I think that could be, um, a, you know, a, a source of kind of continued rise. So we may just be at the beginning of that. But, um, you know, I've never claimed to be a, a macro expert, just kind of my uh, observations from tracking, tracking this stuff pretty closely for the last couple of months. I don't know, Noah, you have any thoughts? Well, what's interesting, when we talked in the pre-show that um, I come from not a financial background, and so I, I am happy to represent the newbie in this scenario and in this conversation and just ask the, the nuanced questions that um, people may not know. And um, one of them I had was actually around options trading. So Matt, do you know, like, since the price has gone, you know, um, since the stock split, I should say, does that also mean that options trading generally is a third of the price that it was prior to the split? Yeah. So I mean, the, the mechanics of of the of options are are just the same as as holding equity. So you get you know three times the number of contracts, but um, each strike price is uh, one third the, the the previous strike price. So it really doesn't change anything at all from from that standpoint. Okay. Cool. So the cost, like for the same amount dollar value like it's not a, like a percentage change or anything it's like yeah just the contract number is different and the, it's also a third of the price right so yeah it's like equally okay cool interesting what i find interesting about the the recent price movements is that um so i was i i heard your comment about ukraine while, while i while i was sort of uh, actually let me let me ask this question uh is my audio better now am i more synced or is it still a problem it I think you're a bit off still. You're like two still frames a bit off, off instead of like six. <laughs> okay. All right. I'll take that. Maybe StreamYard is having an issue today. Okay. Yeah. Um, what I'm finding interesting is on the, uh, there was a Twitter space this morning that I joined. I think, Matt, you were in it as well. I can't remember if it was you or Emmett, but uh, they were talking about um, Ukraine. Uh, I think Bradford yeah, was in that Ferguson one. Yeah. In that one. Yeah. And so, I'm I'm curious how much of that is is public knowledge. Is that something just that's within our circle that we're understanding that could be part of what's driving the the stock price further, or is this a more well known thing that uh, Russia is actually? It's they seem like they are. It, like it seems like the war is trending towards a place where there's going to be some sort of ceasefire or um or pause. How do you view that? Yeah. Yeah, so maybe I just like the I think the key development that happened yesterday, and, and actually, I, like I'm not an expert on, on this. I've just been kind of listening to people who like, truly, <laughs> truly understand this this in detail. 
Um, but but the the big kind of development that happened over the last couple of days is there's a, there's been this uh, Ukrainian counteroffensive, um, and it's it's pretty clear that they either have or they are you know days away from capturing like a very key uh, Russian supply like depot. I don't know if it's a city or a rail railway railway or what, um, but it, it that's going to essentially choke off all the supplies from Russia to the the kind of front line. Uh, Russian troops, and so listening to to the people who are you know more well versed than I speak about this, you know they, they were basically saying like the Russians don't really have um, any good options at this point, and they're also not like retreating in a way that seems to make strategic sense. So they were saying like these people are either going to just like end up as cannon fodder, and like uh, apparently there was around eighteen hundred Russians who who were killed just today. Um, so like staggering kind of casualties that will make like the cost of the war just intolerable um so you you may have like a, a big surrender of some amount of troops or otherwise it, it may just become pretty clear that the, the russians have gained the or sorry the, the ukrainians have have really gained the, the upper hand so um i don't know to what extent that is you know wide knowledge i mean i i was looking a little bit this morning i didn't see like in the wall street journal or anything it's possible i missed it um, but I didn't see any like major outlets reporting on what I think is is like really significant news on, on this front. So um, it's possible that it's it's like a a version of what we saw in the Tesla community, where like there's this small group of people that really understand what's going on way before the rest of the of the world. And I don't want to like pat ourselves on the back too much, but um, to me, it seems more likely that you know there's it's it's kind of that dynamic rather than like wide recognition of exactly what's going on and kind of probabilities of Ukraine winning and that sort of thing. Interesting. I go ahead, Noah. I just might be ignorant on this whole topic, but um, obviously there's the world pressures and world economics that are sitting on top of Russia, you know, with embargoes and um, the things that they're dealing with. So I, I just feel like a coup is inevitable. Like if if um, there isn't some sort of bigger war, you know, um, and allies being formed and what have you. So, um, but yeah, it's it's definitely pressuring Russia, but it's really affecting everybody globally as well. Yeah, I, yeah, well, I mean, on, on that front, there was one thing I heard on, on the stream while I was listening to it today that I thought was, was pretty eye opening. Uh, and my numbers were probably a little bit off here, but they said something to the extent of Russia had um, like hoarded $300 billion worth of, of like currency reserves um, in order to kind of weather the, the sanction storm. And just in, you know, six months or whatever it's been since, since they started the fighting, um, they've, they've burned through $100 billion of that. Um, so you, you could imagine if this, you know, goes on another, you know, year, then like there's, there's really nothing left to kind of prop up the, you know, the economy there and, and kind of protect the ruble from, from devaluation and that sort of thing. So, um, I, I think Russia has done a pretty good job shielding the populace from both like the truth about what's going on, uh, like on the front lines, but also like from the economic impacts of, of the sanctions. And I mean, even just like a month ago, the, the, the narrative was that like, Europe is completely beholden to Russia on the energy front. So like Germany is going to cave and like they're going to like, you know, just really increase the, you know, the amount of payments going to Russia and like Russia, the ruble had been strengthening. And so it looked like Putin was kind of making a fool of, of these European leaders. And, you know, fast forward a month and it seems like that kind of narrative is actually starting to crumble, which I, I wasn't really expecting, to be honest with you. Um, somebody in the comments was, was talking about the, you know, the, the, energy crisis, which is, you know, looming in, in Europe, which I think is is a very real consideration. Um, but 
the, the, the like just this morning, the, there was like a record number of LNG tankers um, going to supply Europe. And, and I think there's really growing awareness among the populace in, in Europe that like they're going to have to make sacrifices, um, you know, do some like kind of wartime rationing like you haven't seen since World War Two, really. Uh, but I think I'd be curious, you know, in the comments, if there's any uh, of our, you know, listeners or, or watchers who are from Europe, you know, what, what's the kind of sense on the ground? Because to me, the, the things I've been hearing are that like people understand and it's like kind of a national pride sort of thing that, you know, they're going to need to kind of wean themselves off of Russian fuel, at least for right now. So I, I'm very curious to see how this pans out because it could be a total disaster, especially if, if the winter is particularly cold. Um, but I think it maybe is not as dire as, as maybe some of the, the loudest voices have made it sound. Yeah, we've get, been getting flux alerts here in California and we've had a, a heat wave here. It's been really um, detrimental to a lot of communities. And um, I haven't heard of any sort of rolling blackouts yet, but I, I think obviously with the history of Texas and other places in, in the U.S. and obviously in the world too, um, it's just becoming more and more important to go um, green and, and have to have solar and to have battery backups uh, power options and stuff. And so I, I don't know, I, I think people and the world in general are, are taking these kind of options more seriously now. It's like less of a like cloud dreaming kind of solution of like high in the sky, you know, one day it'll happen to like, oh, this is something we need now and we need to figure out um, this energy solution, whether it's, you know, Russian imports from um, oil and gas or, or just solar locally here. So I pulled up a chart. I just so we were talking about sort of uh, the topic of the Russian ruble came out and uh, its performance versus the USD. And then uh, I just I, I'm just just out of curiosity, I was wondering how <laughs> I was trying to see if this kind of gives a signal of how the maybe the world is viewing Russia's uh, economic strength versus um, uh, the rest of it. And I don't know if this is a good way of looking at it, but. Um, you can see that in the so right around when the war started, which was around February or March of this year, uh, the ruble went went down a lot, and then it had a huge spike up um, towards uh, the current levels now. So it what was it? So it went all the way down to 0 0.0091 uh, rubles to the dollar. Then it spiked up to uh, 0.019 rubles to the dollar in June 29. And then it sort of came down and flattened out a little bit. So I'm just curious, like if we were to see some true crises in, in Russia when it comes to their economy and how the war is impacting them, would we see a core? And I, I don't know if this is a question for the I'm just kind of throwing it out. There. I'm curious to see if anybody would know this. Would we see a decline in this graph? And would this give us a signal that says that hey, or a confirmation that says, hey, what we're hearing about Russia and having a lot of struggles would that be reflected in this chart here? How, how how should I think about this chart at all, Matt? I don't know if you have a question, an answer for this, but I'm just curious. No, I mean, I, my my takeaway is like you you can see that the huge step like drop off that that kind of happened in March, and like people just assumed that sanctions were going to take away or take effect right away, and like Russia was kind of screwed just because of how serious those were. And then you know, kind of to the the commentary I was giving uh, just a minute ago, uh, what actually happened is that like you know European or um you know the the Russia's uh, oil and gas exports really strengthened and, and their economy was much more um, resilient to these sanctions than uh, we had presumed would be the case. Um, so you've seen a little bit of, of a drop off since, you know, like the July peak or maybe it was June. Um, 
but to me it, it it's it seems like there's there's not a clear signal from the market that like you know there's broad recognition that russia is losing the war and, and they like face the the potential of like a coup or a national default or, or something like that um so, so to me what that indicates is that the market is not really pricing in in a kind of really really bad news for for russia um mm. i'd be curious though if you look up the moex exchange moex i haven't looked at that in a long time i think it's like the the broadest uh russians uh equity index moex uh exchange. i believe that's it yeah uh it's 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 a it's an index technically uh so like that second one that yahoo finance one i think oh, would show you the right chart yeah so i don't know if you look at the year to date or something what that would show us but the, the trading on this was halted for a long time So there's your today there. There's a daily candle. Yeah, so look, I mean, it looks broadly similar to what we saw on the, on the currency side. So uh, just looking at these two charts, obviously it's not, you know, definitive, but to me, it doesn't, it doesn't seem that the market is taking into account like the much higher probability that Ukraine is going to end up having a strategic victory in, in this, in this war. Um, so I don't know. I'm, I'm again no currency expert either, but uh, this is they're they're in bad shape. I think. Mm -hmm. Well, that's super interesting, and I think the core question, if if I'm getting this right, is like, does fiat currency exchange track public sentiment? Right. So like, this exchange between one government's money and another government's money, fiat currency. Right. Is that uh, a good way of judging? How the public is perceiving the situation <laughs> um, and obviously there's other factors at play another interesting thing i've seen on uh, other youtube streams is um, there are lots of millionaires leaving russia and china right now um, to go to other places and so i, I wonder how that gets tracked in this whole um, situation as well yeah yeah there's, there's a lot of uh, interesting like this whole thing has been going on for what feels like forever. It's been like, what, seven, eight months or, or so. And it's like this entire year has been. And of course, like the, the worst thing about this whole thing is people are dying by far. Like, and yeah. I want to make sure that's clear. And I, I know everybody agrees here 100%. by far. What's in, you know, what's interesting from from at least my perspective is trying to see how how the market reacts to these things, given that, you know, especially since a lot of us are, are Tesla investors, like the the my my hope is that this thing just ends it just stops so that people can stop dying and get back to their families and hopefully live a, a good life moving moving forward. Um, what I do find interesting in the last few days is that we're still like we're seeing these rallies and in, in so if we can go back to Tesla for a little bit, we're seeing these rallies in Tesla that are happening. Um, so there was one little rally in July where we went from uh, in 713, where we went from 237 post split up to uh, what was it? Three something, 313, 314. Then we came down after Jackson Hole. And now we're seeing sort of this rebound, uh, which we kind of theorized a little bit. I'm curious if if in the next, so I'm thinking about the next um, few months for Tesla. It's, it seems very exciting. We got Q3 deliver. Well, we got AI Day Two end of this month. We have Q3 deliveries beginning of next month. So in about four, uh, like probably closer to three and a half weeks. Then we have Q3 earnings, which are going to be, uh, I think, they're going to surprise people. Uh, say like the broader markets, and then we also have a potential uh, changing in the 
a language that the Fed is giving from an interest rate perspective. So like those four things I'm viewing as uh, some pretty major catalysts for the stock moving forward. Um, I'm curious to see if you guys think about it the same way and uh, if you have any comments around that. But that's I'm just very excited for these next four, four to six weeks. Like there's going to be a lot going on and, and Twitter, too. So we also could see Twitter either um, settle which I still think they're going to like. I'm 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 seeing that as a as a likely possibility given the whole thing. I still think Twitter settles with Elon and they and they come up with a new price. So there's like five things right there in the next four to six weeks that could really help the stock move upwards. How do you guys think about that? I think it's interesting around the um, U.S. Um, and I, at least for me and my wife, we have a pre-order for a Model Y that was supposed to be here in like November, December, right before the $7,500 tax incentive is supposed to kick in. So um, I don't know if it was on this show or, or a different show, but, um, you know, basically um, from what I heard from another channel, they're, they're looking at boosting the local sales within China and doing less um, imports, you know, into the U.S. So I'm curious, too, if if the Austin factory and even Fremont, if they're considering, you know, lowering local deliveries and looking at other exports as well, because if the U.S. demand, I guess you can say, is temporarily slowed down until, you know, the first of the year, if they're going to kind of shift those around and because I still think they're going to deliver every car they make. And like, even even if I had to compromise, if like, all right, you get the car um, or you have to wait at the back of the line, I, I would take the car and not get the $7,500, you know, credit or whatever. So um, mm. I think that's one of the other factors that might be participating or contributing to this situation yeah i think the other possibly even more impactful thing in the short term is we have cpi print uh next week for august um so if that's another kind of surprise i think it's tuesday morning but i could be it's i think it's either tuesday or wednesday um i I, my i believe it is tuesday though um you could probably check it out look it up um but it, you know, if that was another um, good print, then then you may have a, a uh, you know kind of rally similar to what we saw last month, where all of a sudden the um, you know the the probabilities that the markets are ascribing to um, like a seventy five basis point hike will decrease a little bit. September thirteenth. So what what day is that? Oh, I, I, I should Tuesday. Okay. Um, and, and that would be you know I think just a, a big boon potentially or it could actually i think it'll be volatile one way or another personally um it's just such a such a, a an important thing it's like like i said it's public enemy number one for the equity markets right now so whether the news is good or bad i do kind of expect it to, to move markets real quick i want to give kathy you're nuts she just donated 100 bucks to the stream thank you so much matt Noah, if you guys are in Austin, drinks are on Kathy. How about that? <laughs> <laughs> Let's do that. Thank you, Kathy. That's so sweet of you. Seriously, thank you. But uh, you're going to get us nice and drunk. Go ahead. <laughs> yeah, so I... I uh... <laughs> what was that? No, I, I, I didn't hear that. Sorry, uh, we can get Gary Black a webcam now. <laughs> yeah, right? <laughs> <laughs> He's got one. He did, he did get one last year uh, when he was doing that interview with me for the first time. Um, but there the other go. thing I was going to say, like, I, I really do think, um, and, and this is something that Farza, or not Farza, that Yaman's been really hammering home. How um, dare you? <laughs> <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm teasing. You, you guys are pretty much the same. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I do think the, the, the Q3 numbers are, are going to surprise. And, and this is something we're going to go over my my earnings model on our, our Good Soil Investment uh 
stream next Tuesday. Um, nice. So we'll do like a deeper dive into that. We're still kind of refining some of our assumptions, but you know, the, the more I've been kind of listening to the Uber Bear case or the Uber Bull case, um, and kind of digesting some of their points and trying to like, you know, take away like the unbridled optimism and just say, okay, what are the the nuggets of truth that I I really think are are likely to happen, not just kind of hope will happen. Um, you know, when I've kind of gone through that on some of these streams, and and at the same time, I've been uh, listening to a couple uh, bears and you know, like Brad Munchen's one of them who, who I interact with pretty frequently, got some decent points, but um, I, I'm putting all of it together and and I've, I've had to raise my my Q3 estimates pretty significantly from where they had been. Um, so like I noticed even Gary Black, I think he's something at like $1.12 or something like that and the market's at $1.06. Um, and, you know, I'm, I'm thinking that the beat is going to be like very, very large, not not like Yaman large with like 40% margins and and anything anything like that. But, um, you know, I, I think, I think that it has the potential to be a, a massive catalyst for Tesla, uh, particularly. So I'm pulling yeah, up, so uh, at 112. Black. yeah, 112 versus 107, uh, estimate. Sorry, Matt, where, where do you think you're landing? Is that, do you have the number ready yet or you want to yeah, say? Well, so, you know, we were, I was, I was, uh, Emmett and I were, we're kind of going over it yesterday and like making some assumptions of like, like a, a kind of reasonable case and then more like an uber bull case uh, that we still thought was somewhat reasonable um and so like um, the reasonable case i was coming up with was like around a dollar 59 and then our uber bull case was like a dollar 79 so i was wow. kind of joking with them and i was like split the difference here at 169 which you know sometimes <laughs> the most entertaining answer is the the correct one so we're gonna refine that you know i'm, I'm not completely sure like I, I, where where the assumptions are but um like i i really think that the the forward estimates in like 2023 in particular if you look at at where analysts are expecting that that to be in my mind it's like ridiculously low and then you've got tesla energy ramping and, and you've got you know fsd and whoever whatever we, we might find out on ai day so you know the point being i think you've got like all these catalysts kind of stacking and, and again this is not like financial advice um, I would especially advise people not to go and, you know, say Tesla will double in or triple in 2022. So I better go buy a bunch of like short term call options. That's like that's playing with fire. I would really recommend people don't do that. Um, but I do think that, you know, it's like weighing the good news versus the bad or like the the, the catalyst. I, I think it's like very heavily weighted towards towards the good. Um, and the thing I love about Gary, sorry to go on a bit of a rant here. Uh, but I completely no, agree with the way that he looks at it when you like, you know, let's just take out like autonomy and like changes to FSD take rate. Oh, Matt, we lost oh. you, I think. Are you still there, buddy? Hello, one, two. $500, somewhere in that range. Matt, can you um, hear me, buddy? It, oh, sorry. Yeah. Can you hear me? Yep. Yeah, we, we lost you for like uh, 10 seconds. So the thing you love about Gary is... His beautiful <laughs> hair. There you um, go. <laughs> <laughs> no, I was gonna say what? like I'm just you kidding. know. <laughs> <laughs> the thing, thing I love Sorry. about Gary is Sorry. like he says like let's just focus on on like the like the the car business and when he does that he's he's just saying like the it, it's so undervalued by Wall Street so I think his price target correct me if I'm wrong uh, but I think it's something like five hundred dollars in the next six to twelve months five fifty uh, so. 550 yeah so he's basically saying like a slightly less than double in the next you know six to 12 months even if you exclude 
all the upside potential that that we all believe in, or maybe that some of us believe in on, you know, autonomy and Tesla bot and energy ramping and, and all those sorts of things. And, and I agree with him. Like when I'm looking at the numbers from like a conservative, you know, just like Wall Street analyst point of view, and I don't adjust take rate and I don't, you know, do anything super crazy. Uh, and I'm using like low multiples to account for macro risk. Like I, I kind of, I, I get where he's coming from and I'm coming, coming up with similar numbers. So um, that, that to me is what's exciting is the fundamentals provide a backstop for valuation. Do you tend to also have a 12 month evaluation or do you also model out past 12 months? Yeah. So I have, um, I have two different models actually. One is like a, a very detailed discounted cash flow, um, like building up all parts of the business. Although Tesla bot, I haven't, I haven't added to that yet. Um, so yeah, that, that one is more like a, sh uh, like a share price calculation, uh, like looking out to 2030, say, and, and kind of making assumptions on robo taxis and, you know, FSD take rates. And, and those are like the big drivers, but then also a little bit for energy and some other things. Um, so I've, I've got that version. Uh, but then what I think is, is kind of more impactful for like the near term is, is, um, like an earnings per share model. So it, um, I, I do model those out separately. And um, that one, I think, because like if Tesla just keeps beating analyst estimates by like 30, 40, 50% every single quarter, like that just, if the stock doesn't move, that compresses the, the PE ratio down to like potentially ludicrous levels. So at some point, the stock has to react and say, okay, maybe, you know, these, these crazy margins that Tesla is able to achieve are actually sustainable in some manner. And so then like the PE ratio has to increase. Um, so that, that's kind of my belief is that like PE ratio is, is going to drive, you know, stock price in the near term. And so then it just becomes a, a short-term execution story. That's great. And then as far as your model that goes out further, do you factor in, um, Tesla's expense for, um, you know, getting to 20 million vehicles if they do need to say three, four, five more factories, six more factories. Is that also part of your model and how that those mm -hmm. continue, you know, because capital expenses seem like they would be short term when you're building a new factory. But really, if they're continuously building for the next 10 years, you know, it might be a more ongoing factor. Yeah, yeah. So like, I, I have an assumption, um, I, I think in my model, just like, I don't want to give Tesla credit for, you know, their goals or their targets. So I think I assumed uh, my, my first model was actually 12 million by 2020. But uh, after this past year, and, and you know, how how well they've really executed. Um, and, and frankly, seeing seeing the demand, I mean, that was maybe a bigger concern for me a year ago, but seeing how demand has just really, really accelerated this year. Um, I increased my my 2030 forecast to I think it's like 16 million something like that. So um, getting a lot closer to you know giving Tesla credit for the for the full 20 million. Um, but yeah, then I I added a uh, oh, did I drop off again? No, you're good. We'll see. You. I got to get a Starlink. Okay, you guys both froze for a second. Sorry. Um, <laughs> so I, but like I've, I've got a line essentially that has like the the capex per unit of capacity. So then it, as you adjust your deliveries up or down, your capex will also adjust up or down. And there's like a, I think it's like a four month or a, a four quarter lead time that, that I've built in there too, to kind of account for the fact that, you know, you, you're going to be building these well in advance of, of when the, the new vehicles come online. Nice. That's helpful. Um, looks like we got a, a little bit of uh, boost in the views. We have people coming from Yashu's stream. I believe he just uh, ended uh, the uh, his stream. So welcome in. Come on in, everybody. Um, there was a... Oh, before we even say anything, if you haven't subscribed to Yashu's channel yet, please go subscribe to his channel. The guy has been trying to get to 20,000 subscribers for a while now, and I need to freaking send my people there to get him there. Please go subscribe to his channel. 
his channel is hit that bid here we go hit that bid he has such great content awesome. it's so good right here boom look at this handsome guy how could you not be subscribed to this guy for real go subscribe to his channel he's awesome he's been on the show before he does really really good work um the one thing that i wanted to bring up as well through that we were talking about uh the deferred tax credit so don't forget one billion in deferred tax credit they better use this year to avoid paying income tax for 2022. um is that is that how the mechanism works matt are you aware of this of this sort of thing that's going on with tesla yeah so um this this is like an accounting um like rabbit hole that <laughs> i could spend 20 minutes kind of going into the details of but i'll spare everyone um the, the the short answer is i don't think this really matters um and the, and the reason being is that it, it's purely an accounting mechanism so like tesla is not paying cash for taxes uh although they they will be presumably with this new kind of minimum um tax that, that's being assessed as part of the um inflation reduction act um, but but the, the this kind of um, $1 billion deferred tax credit that they're talking about, um, there's a difference between uh, the, the taxes that Tesla has had to book on their income statements. So like if you if you look right now, um, I think they're paying like a 9% tax rate. And if you were to um, basically look at the amount of that that's US based, um, you know, they, they're charging their income statement on, for like an, on an accounting basis on a gap accounting basis for income tax that they're not paying and the reason that they're not paying that tax is because there's this this concept called a net operating loss carry forward so you know from 2000 when, when was the company found six or whatever all the way through like mid 2019 the company didn't have positive net income so um the the tax rules in the united states allow you to carry forward that tax balance to offset future tax liabilities and so right now we're in this stage where tesla is profitable but they're still able to kind of harvest um those net operating loss carry forwards um however like the way that those were accounted for back in 2019 is it was such a massive bucket of of net operating losses relative to like a little tiny stream of profitability that they had at the time so the the like accounting treatment uh, uh basically said that okay these nol carry forwards they're called expire after i think it might be like 15 years or something like that and so they did the math at the time and said okay well if this little stream of you know, profitability, you know, increases over time, you're actually only going to be able to use roughly half of the of the net operating loss carry forward. So the total total amount was something like 2 billion, but they had like a, a valuation haircut to make it just 1 billion. Um, and so that's the amount that that was booked. So this this $1 billion gain that we're talking about, it's just saying that, okay, we now think it's it's highly probable that we'll be able to use the full $2 billion of net operating losses uh, that we have from our, our startup days. And so we're going to adjust our balance sheet to account for the fact that it's probable that we'll use these now. And so you have a one-time mm -hmm. gain, but it doesn't change anything about your cash flows. It doesn't change anything about like the business. So in my mind, it's, it's like a non-issue. Like it, it might really pop and make like a headline number on, on like CNN or something like that. But in my mind, it's, it's a non-issue. So is it is it sitting in the balance sheet? It just hasn't been recognized in the PNL. Is just is that the right way of thinking about it? Yeah, it's a it's a deferred tax asset, uh, but there's a there's like a valuation adjustment that they they apply to it. Um, and so okay. you know it's it's like a two billion dollar asset that's adjusted down to one billion. And, and these numbers are, are, are probably not accurate. I haven't taken a look at this in a while, but um, 
So yeah, there. But it doesn't change the does story. It. That's really the the overarching story. Like there's no like something that comes up and it hits and it's all of a sudden. Oh my god, there's a billion bucks that appear out of nowhere. It's not really like that. Yeah, yeah. It's like it would be a different story know. if like there was a tax credit that they got that was one billion dollars of cash added to their balance sheet or something like that. That that should have a valuation impact. But when it's just um, like like the only way you could make a, a slight argument that it should have a, a valuation impact is if in your like very detailed discounted cash flow model you assumed that they wouldn't use all those net operating loss carry forwards. So you're like essentially you're just adjusting your tax rate very slightly for like mm. four years, and 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 so it's like a it's a it's just a very modest impact. Um, and and it's it's mostly like it's more noise in my mind than than what we should be kind of focusing on. Got it. Yeah. I had a question around that too, from a layman's term uh, perspective, I should say. So my understanding is because Tesla operated at a loss for X amount of years in the beginning, they basically have um, some credit or deductions they can take. Is that is that an accurate way of looking at that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So essentially, like, just imagine it's your own personal finances, and and you, like you lost a hundred thousand dollars last year. Um, if you're a business, there's a rule that you can actually carry that forward. So if you make hundred thousand dollars next year then you could actually offset that and so you wouldn't pay taxes that, that that's kind of the, the mechanism okay cool and is there a limit to how far back tesla can go in that stop loss yeah so th- this is this is where the the rules get very technical and in, in my you know kind of knowledge like i'm not a technical accountant but my understanding from looking at similar kind of um treatment of physical assets on um on like the utility side like power plants um is that it's like roughly a 15 year life and so that's why they would apply this valuation discount because um you know if if you're not going to use two billion dollars worth if you're not going to generate two billion dollars worth of net income in 15 years then it wouldn't make sense to to kind of book that full amount of the net operating loss carry forward for sure and one last question as far as full self-driving my understanding is they're not uh counting that towards profit yet but when they decide to do so like when it's widely released or whenever that they decide to do this. So then that's when they'll start converting that those money, that money into profit. Is that correct as well? Um, it's not entirely correct. So, so they are recognizing some uh, of the, of the, of the revenue as profit by my math. It's like around a little over 55% they're recognizing right now. Um, so in, in the, the logic behind this kind of accounting rule, gosh, I did not think this was going to turn into like an accounting lecture. So sorry, everyone. I am sticking by we're my gaining. We're gaining. comment at the, uh, at the beginning of this, that this is going to be your worst live stream of the week, Farzad, for sure. Nope. Um, <laughs> but so, so the, the rationale behind the 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 accounting recognition of full self-driving revenues is that tesla has not delivered all of the functionality that they promised to their customers so let's say you you bought full self-driving for ten thousand dollars and you were promised automatic driving on city streets and like the highways and summon and you know all these things well they've delivered autopilot on like the highway and navigate on autopilot they've delivered you know recognition of traffic lights They've delivered smart summon, but for the vast majority of U.S. customers, they have not actually delivered um, full self-driving where it will actually just drive itself on city streets. So um, the interesting thing is, like, I, I, so I assume that last quarter with the, the beta program going out to 100,000 people, that they would recognize um, the full amount of full self-driving for those 100,000 drivers. 
um, but they didn't, interestingly. So uh, I think it's it's probably, I, th I think it's very likely that if it does go into wide release where every single US and Canadian purchaser of full self-driving gets the software, say in Q4, then um, I think they would have to recognize, um, you know, that that deferred revenue balance at that point. Um, so, so the interesting thing there is like, I think so you could have like a $1 billion write up on like earnings. And so like earnings per share could be like really pop because you've got like this, this one-time item. Um, and Gary Black's point, and, and I agree with him completely is that the market is going to discount that because it's like a one-time recognition. But I also think the market where the market gets it wrong is that if it's true, like that $1 billion is real profitability that applied to previous quarters. So like you can't just only discount it. You have to you have to adjust forward and say, okay, now I have to increase my profitability estimates for full self-driving because it's going to go from being 50% rec recognizable to 100%, at least in the US. And so that has very real kind of gross margin impacts that, you know, uh, do relate to earnings per share. So um, yeah, that's another, like most analysts are not looking into that level of detail. Um, Adam or uh, who's the Piper Sandler um, analyst? He's the, who's not been Jonas, on Rob Mauer's show. No, it's not Jonas. It's um, I can't remember his name, but he's the only yeah. one who's actually modeled this out in what I would call the correct level of detail. And, and he's getting just like some pretty um, interesting margin assumptions when, when he does that. Thanks for going down this rabbit hole. It's exciting to learn about this kind of stuff. Yeah, I, I, like it's it's meaningful. Like if, if you if you don't understand that Tesla's profitability, even assuming full self driving take rates don't change, um, but like so, just keep everything else equal. Um, their profitability is going to increase next year just because of this one fact alone that that you know the full self driving revenues will be uh, more recognizable. And then on top of that, you've got I, like I think a very likely scenario where take rates actually do increase because the software itself just gets so much better and the price increases are, you know, uh, generating more revenue. So, um, yeah, I, I, I'm mildly bullish, but I've been, I've been wrong on my predictions of like take rate going up before. So I'm kind of, uh, trying to be a little bit more cautious when I'm actually making my, my modeling assumptions around this. Helpful. Uh, the name of the gentleman, I believe Matt is uh, Alex Potter. Of the That's right. Yeah, we were talking about. Yeah, um, somebody asked me to to throw up the uh, the chart while we were going through this. Uh, so I got to do this since uh, Yashu does it. Two ninety eight thirty sitting on Tesla right now. Juju Kang, you know. There you go. There's my uh, Yashu impersonation. Uh, real do you quick, have your blueberries to... ready, Farzad? No, dude. I was half thinking about bringing some fruit on this just to. Because I saw Yashu was live as well while we uh, like a little bit before we were and I was on a stream for a little bit. I'm like, damn, I should have brought some blueberries. Um, I also want to give a shout out to Emmett. Emmett, we got to have you back sometime, bro. I'll hit you up maybe in the next couple of weeks if you're available. I'd love to have you back. Um, Matt's just better looking. I, I couldn't help myself. <laughs> I'm kidding. Fake news. You're both stunning. You're both just studs. Um, awesome. So... Yeah, it, that was really helpful, Matt, because I think I think the one thing that I keep seeing in the Tesla universe is, um, you know, and, and, and in other places, too, is like there are events that are coming up where some are 
where some people think that once it's recognized, it's going to have a material uh, uh, impact on the stock just for the sake of being recognized. But in reality, we have to view it from the perspective of does it actually change the valuation of the company based on this recognition? Mm -hmm. And so the the example you went through with the uh, with the billion dollars on the take rate being being recognized in previous quarters as well was a perfect example for me to say, okay, so that that seems to me like a much more material impact than the tax the, the, than the deferral of that tax uh, and the NOL thing mm -hmm. that you went through. So that was very helpful to understand. Um, and you'll be pleased to know that our viewership has actually gone up since you started talking about that technical stuff. So. <laughs> Maybe you got to keep going down that rabbit hole, bro. <laughs> I think it's all the likes that your uh, your lovely listeners are putting on here. <laughs> um, I do want to cover a piece of news that came out uh, earlier today, or um, uh, maybe it was almost just broken. Uh, yeah, this morning. So Tesla, considering lithium refinery in Texas, seeks tax relief. So this uh, sort of was tacked to the comment where uh, Elon in the past said that this is essentially a money printing machine that the lithium refining was one of the biggest bottlenecks for them to get to a state where they can have enough raw materials for their uh, scaling of the batteries did you see did you either of you guys see this news any thoughts any reactions comment section chat feel free if you guys want to drop some nuggets there but i found this interesting because th this means that tesla is getting into the into the um they're getting closer and closer to the mining step. And I've long theorized that I do think Tesla is eventually going to be in that business, even though they've been open about saying they don't want to be part of it. But this is yet another step closer to that before refining, it comes to the extraction of the materials, right? So any takes on this? I think Elon has basically said he's going to backstop it even though he really doesn't want to. And what I mean by that is like, he's going to make sure it happens. Like he's trying to get other companies to support and be vendors and, and, you know, mine it themselves. But at some point, um, when push comes to shove, like he's going to put energy and resources towards making that happen. Um, and then obviously politically it gets a little dicey when you're, you know, digging up stuff and there's environmental challenges with that. And obviously it's creating another business or another line within um, Tesla or another company, but, um, yeah, it's a whole nother can of worms that he's hoping to avoid, but I, I think like you're saying, it's pretty much inevitable. I, I think just the way Tesla and Elon operates his companies, like it's going to need somebody like that. Who's going to spearhead that and really take it to the next level. Yeah. Like I, I, this is actually something that I did was not very well um, versed on what a big issue this was until we had um, Jordan Giesegi from limiting factor and Josh is blonde. Who's, who's another kind of great lightly followed uh, Tesla resource in the, in the Twitter community. Uh, but we had the, the two of them on our, our channel with, with Emmett and had a, a really great kind of roundtable discussion of like, all right, if Tesla's actually going to, you know, scale to 20 million units, and the rest of the industry is trying to go EV2. Like, what does that imply just about like how how much mining supply there is and like what are the different bottlenecks? And like, I, I kind of had an uneducated mind, like, oh, they'll just like figure it out. Like they've been really great at executing. Um, but like hearing Jordan's concern, who's following following this much more closely and saying like, I don't see how they get to 20 million vehicles, um, given like the fact that there's no new factories being built, especially around the refining side of lithium. I think if my memory is correct, that was like his single biggest concern. Because uh, um, like you've heard Elon say that like for the next two years, they're, they're pretty much good. But that kind of implies, well, what what about after that, right? And and I think like that's that's the real concern is like twenty twenty five to you know twenty thirty, 
like people are not putting in the amount of capex that seems like it would be needed to uh, really scale the um, you know the the battery the production of all the the battery materials uh, in a way that that's meaningful. So um, that that really kind of sobered me up a little bit i think about like even as like uh, i mentioned my 16 million target for 2030 well maybe that's too aggressive then if, if you've got like just very real supply cha- uh, challenges that you know like there's just not enough or being you know like mined and especially refined um so the fact that they're kind of getting ahead of this potentially like i think this is very big news actually um Probably not from a valuation standpoint, but from like a long-term kind of like sustainable advantage standpoint, I think this is this is like a really good news that like we'll we'll be seeing the rewards of this in three years' time and be like, oh wow, I'm I'm sure glad they like thought to buy that refining company because wow, if you look at like the supply of lithium refining, like Ford can't get any and GM can't get any and Tesla's like the only game in town. Um, yeah, so I, I think this is really important for for that reason. I think on the other side of it, like past 2030, maybe 2040, 2050 even, once we have enough materials out of the ground, right, it becomes a recycling factor and Redwood Materials and other companies like that, even Tesla's recycling, it's, that's going to be the more important thing. So I think there'll be a, sh- a huge midterm, long-term push towards uh, mining and refineries, and then over time, it'll switch to a recycling-based system. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I th- I think the point you made about Ford and GM, so that's where my head goes to whenever Elon talks about uh, not having enough supply or the refining processes is forget Tesla's uh, ability to scale. What about the entire world? <laughs> if, 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 the, if the whole, if Tesla's 20 million by 2030 is a jeopardy, I'm assuming that that means that the rest of the company's targets to get to where they need to be is even, at even more jeopardy. Because the way I think about it is Tesla's going to be ahead of the curve when it comes to this sort of planning and supply chain and manufacturing. So for example, GM just announced well, that they just uh, showed their new Silverado was it Silverado? No, I'm sorry. The the SUV Equinox. I forget what the hell the name of it. The one that's made in Mexico. Um, SUV competitor for the Model yeah. Y. It's a little bit cheaper. But quick. Okay, so five years from now, what is what is their unit volume target, and how does this piece of it, you know, play into that equation? And then when when we try and so when I try to sit down and think about this with say folks that are on the bear side or think that competition is definitely going to catch up. I wonder how many of these folks are have like this article, like how many of these people, how many of these folks are looking at it from this perspective of the supply chain? It's not just a matter of, well, you know, it's just a new drivetrain. Like um, I think you had Albert, uh, I believe his name's Albert, right? Um, uh, he, you, you and Emmett interviewed him from uh, a few months ago. He had very good bear arguments, but I wonder uh, oh, like, how much of those... Drew Dixon, I'm sorry. I don't know why I said Albert. Albert. Yeah, Drew Dixon. Sorry. I don't even know why. Um, <laughs> isn't it? Albert's what, not even what's close. The, I'm, just not, I, I'm just a moron. Forget it. Uh, but Drew Dixon. But I wonder how many folks on that on that camp are looking at at this equation of say competition and everybody else who's trying to scale up and getting to that point, um, and are they looking at these channels? Like for example, Rivian as well is going on a partnership with Mercedes where they're going to be providing the drivetrain and the batteries. But how much does this part of the equation impact their ability to get to that level? Right? Um, it's just yeah. it's just fascinating because we we it seems like it seems like at least within certain circles in, in, in the Tesla community, I think really a lot of folks in the Tesla community understand, I think are much more much more well 
much more well-versed from the standpoint of scaling and what the supply chain needs to do in order to satisfy the long-term goals versus, well, we're just going to get there. You know, the, the mm -hmm. automakers have been doing it. It's just a different kind of drivetrain. They'll figure out the pieces, but will they really, you know, will they really, I don't know. I just find yeah. that very fascinating. Yeah. Like I, I think a reasonable bear argument and something that the traditional OEMs are like terrified of is building excess capacity because because that's how auto companies go bankrupt. Um, mm. And so like, I think it's at least the way the reason I say it's a reasonable argument is because like you you could imagine that if Tesla builds out supply for like 4 million models. Uh oh, Matt, we lost you again. Cut price. I oh. drop off again. Oh, oh. oh. now you're back. Okay. You're back now. Um, now I'm back. All right. Um, so, so like the, you, you could imagine like um, if, if there's just like a huge overbuild of model Y production, cause demand is so great right now. Uh, but then like you double and triple it. And then in three years time, you know, the, the demand just dries up a little bit. I don't think this is going to happen, but if that did, like, and you run that through what would happen to their financials, it's, it's like a, a disaster. And that, that's like how auto cut companies have gone bankrupt in the past. And so I think, uh, a huge hesitancy, a huge hesitancy that you're seeing from the traditional OEMs right now is that they don't really want to stick their neck out too far on like these mm -hmm. long-term battery supply because it's like, well, what if EVs don't really take off? I don't want to be stuck with this. Uh, but Tesla, like on the other hand, is is going out and vertically integrating on on like the battery supply side, and and just like I think there's a really interesting mini case study um, of, of like the, the difference in in philosophies between the companies. If you look at what happened uh during covid with like the the chip supply so like chip supply was getting tight uh auto co companies were really concerned that like you know demand would be drying up because the, the world might be like ending and tesla was like nope like we'll buy all of your chips we'll sign long-term contracts right now we want as many as you can give us and we'll put our mm. balance sheet behind it we'll have contractual guarantees for you just give us every single chip you can get and so if you're the supplier you'll be like well great i'll take the tesla deal um, and so like you fast forward, you know, 12, 24 months and you can see like that was a huge victory for Tesla. Like they, they had their supply when all these other companies had their, their plants shut down. Um, and so I think there's, there's gonna be a similar dynamic where Tesla is willing to kind of, kind of put, stick their balance sheet out there to secure the supply in the very long term. And the other companies are just like Panasonic, please try to like, provide me with some cells when I need them, but I'm not going to sign like a contract for 2026 or anything like that um for like a million vehicles they just they, they won't do that so um I, I think they're gonna like if they can get the cells they're gonna be paying more than tesla is that's for sure yeah. and I, I think that hesitation is ultimately what's gonna hinder or kill uh those traditional oems right because they're not willing to fully commit and they're not sure and they're still like uh well maybe we'll hit this target by this you know like it's not like tesla who has openly said 20 million by 2030 right if you look across the board at the other targets from the other oems they're just a fraction like 10%, 5% of the same numbers that Tesla's aiming for, right? And to your point, when they go to those manufacturers and they create those deals and they talk to the supply chain, Tesla's coming in with um, more purchases, right? They're already the, the biggest buyer of batteries in the world, like longer term contracts, bigger contracts overall. And Jesse from Now You Know said something similar about like, if there's a battery breakthrough, guess who they're going to first? Like they're going to the person who has already been buying the most from them, right? And that's Tesla. Like, so Tesla already has this huge advantage versus all the other OEMs because of that. 
the risk of putting your balance sheet out there in a uh, in a contract for supply six to twelve months in the future. So the 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 very interesting dichotomy about that is that two years ago, not even you no know, 2018, 2019, when Tesla's uh, balance sheet was looking a little bit more sketched than it was today, then a lot of people would have been. Uh, very, I think, afraid, or they would see it as an extremely risky move because Tesla uh, didn't have the level of profitability that they had today. They still had a lot of ramping factories. They just weren't as secure, and they had much more debt than they do today. Now, in 2022, if you compare their balance sheet to every other automaker, they are by far the best positioned ones to take uh, their balance sheet and leverage it for uh, supply six to 12 months down the road. So whereas a Ford or a GM who, uh, whom have a lot of those companies have a lot more debt and their cash to debt ratio is much worse off than Tesla's. And as a, uh, ratio to their total business to have less cash on hand than Tesla does, right? If you look view it from a per vehicle perspective, Tesla has what, $18 billion in cash, 16 or 18 billion in cash. They uh, they sold 1 million vehicles last year. Ford and GM are around the 20 billion, maybe a little bit less. Uh, and But they, they ship uh, four to eight X more cars. So it's, it's very interesting to think about it. So Tesla is now uh, in a position where the best, they're in the best position to be able to take those risks into the future of securing the supply. And for the companies that have the most units sold every single year, they're in a in a less advantageous position to try and secure the supply moving forward. It's almost like a self-fulfilling prophecy of why having such a bloated company is a problem when you have to innovate into future technologies. It's like the innovator's dilemma perfectly encapsulated in this exact situation of this lithium deal right and the supply i don't know what you guys think about that but that's where my head goes when we're talking about this topic it's crazy yeah no i mean it, it's it's very true i mean like these other companies like i worked at, at gm for a couple summers as, as an intern and it, gosh it's just so sleepy and it's so bloated and like i just remember the meetings like meetings upon meetings and then there's just like a lot of like goofing off and like i, I had a fun time there but like <laughs> i was i was it could not be more different than like the the culture that you described farzad when, when you were there and just like i had an impossible goal and so i just had to do it and like somehow i found a way to do it and like stretched you like beyond what you probably thought you could do and it's like the exact opposite of, of the culture that these these legacy companies have and um yeah it's just sandy monroe who's like bobblehead is right up behind me like he talks about this all the time it's just like I don't know what they're talking about. Like, <laughs> like you get a couple MBAs in there and they think that they can cost, like squeeze a couple pennies out. And like, he's, he's just, he's completely right. Like there's just, there's so much like O&M that's just wasted there. It's, it's really frustrating. Don't save me any money, says Sandy. I'm I totally in agreement with that. Um, for me, I, I look at the posturing that happens and like, I just, it drives me nuts to think of like how, um, you know, there's a lot of talk and not a lot of walk yet as far as um, the OEMs and what they're creating and doing. Um, I know with that, I, I keep in mind really for me, it's like who's going to ramp their cars, their EVs to a million first, right? Like who, who's going to mass produce vehicles, not at the tens of thousands or even the hundreds of thousands, of thousands, but like at the millions, right? And so once we get to that mass scale, then it's a question of who's going to have the highest profit margin. Um, and to me, Tesla is the clear winner of both of those. And when you multiply the number of vehicles by the amount of profit, like it's just going to be incredible.
Well, that's that's one of the surprising things to me, though, is just like how efficient Tesla has become in their manufacturing. Like when I was um, first investing in the company back in 2017, um, you know, I heard Elon talk about wanting to leapfrog Toyota, Toyota, which has like this vaunted, you know, Toyota production system. It's like a whole case study, like companies all over the world try to implement it. Um, and it's it's like a very big deal because they've, they've been like best in class at like profitability forever since the 70s um and tesla just like went from highly unprofitable to like i think they they matched toyota's operating margins like early last year and now they're like a solid 10 percent above them it's it's ridiculous like that that sort of like how quickly they got to that position of leadership and and like the, the measure by which they're above Toyota's profitability is insane. Like it's it's much better than I thought was possible, you know, five years ago. And 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 they have even like like FSD take rate has been decreasing all this time. So imagine when they've got like that much profitability just on their core manufacturing mark operations, and then they start selling you know, like FSD with a forty percent attach rate, and robo taxis become a thing, and then you know Optimus is, is right around the corner. It's just like. Like it shouldn't be possible, but like here we are. It's pretty kind wild. Of think, go for it. Go. Good. No, please. I was gonna say I kind of think of like a visual of like maybe a rope that's on fire, right? And it's trying to catch up. It's like almost that's the supply, and then the demand <laughs> is the the wick and how long it's growing, right? And so the demand just keeps growing no matter, and the the supply might be getting faster, but <laughs> I don't know if it's ever gonna catch up like if you think of the next three to five years and like tesla's even with them building out fremont and i'm sorry building out uh austin and building out berlin and yeah, shanghai like I, I don't know if they can build it out fast enough to, to meet the demand that's out there right now um and i mean that's obviously why the prices are so high and e elon's said that it, they're embarrassing embarrassingly high right now but it's, it's hard to lower the prices with so much demand yeah that one yeah, sure. so the one thing you said, Noah, was uh, how, uh, you know, I'm looking at the competition. And I'm going to see, I'm seeing which one can get to a million EV units first. So I just pulled up um, the Mach-E, which is the best selling, the second best selling EV in the States uh, by, by a far margin. And right now, so as of April 2022, they were able to sell Ford, was able to sell about 3,800 Mach-E's in the U.S., right? Compare that to the, to the Model Y. Uh, and I'll do that here in a second. Um, like, how how do you get from 3,800 a month to what's probably going to need to be call it anywhere between four and 500,000 a year, right? So that's going to mm -hmm. be a at least a 4x and on a yearly basis, way more than that. Uh, maybe an 8x, depending on depending on how, because it is seasonal uh, in, in a way. Uh, uh, you and of course we're coming off of COVID and stuff like that. It's just fascinating. It's it's so fascinating to watch. That the, that the closest automaker, I think, right now globally, that's near Tesla, that is that is not Chinese. And like that's that's the other thing I think about too, is like the, the Chinese are coming, the Chinese are coming. I'm curious to see how they're going to they're going to enter the market. But right now, it seems like I don't know if it's gonna be Volkswagen or BYD or Baidu or wh whoever it is, whoever else it's gonna be. Um yeah. Anyway, I just want to put the, those figures up because I I wanted to put it within the context of where Tesla is today. I think when China in starts importing, there'll be a high tax tariff that will help pay for the EV incentives for the US-based automakers. I, I Matt, think it's more likely view... that the US OEMs are going to announce 20 million new EVs 
like just like different models and they'll actually build 20 million by 2030. That's their strategy. (laughs) What was it like 30 EVs, I think, or 20 by 2023, I think. And it's like, here we are. And like, I, I, it's just, they're they're not doing it with any kind of meaningful commitments to actually achieve these targets. I think because they're, they're skeptical that the market's actually going to be there. Um, And like, they don't want to stick their neck out, but you have to stick your neck out if you're going to survive this and make this transition work. Um, like more credit to Ford. They're, they're, they're sticking their neck out more than GM for sure. Um, but man, I think a lot of companies aren't going to make it. I find it hilarious that GM's strategy is, oh, we'll make 25 different models and we'll make like three of each of them or whatever, <laughs> you know, whereas Tesla's like, oh, we'll make four models and we'll make millions of all of them. So, uh, and it's they'll be so at the dumb. highest profit margin. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Just like, if you actually think of that one little factor, it's like a no brainer of who's got the better strategy. Yeah. Yeah. But like, that's just like the, the legacy thinking is like, they've always, pe- people have always segmented customers into these, these traditional brands of like the CUV and the SUV and the sedan and the subcompact. And you need like a certain number of each one of them. And you want like low ends and high ends. And then like your premium, like, you know, Cadillacs and Lexuses within each category. And that's just the playbook that like, it's, it is known that that's what you do. <laughs> and so that's what they're doing. It, uh, but it's not like the world has changed and they didn't notice. Yeah. Um, real quick, I, I have a uh, thing up on the screen. Some Somebody in the comments was talking about BYD and um, looking out for them. Let me see if I can find the, the comments here. But um, by the way, if, if anybody has any questions that they want the panel to address, just put question before your question and then drop it in the comments and uh, we'll look to address them. But BYD and I also like to take like to get y'all's take on Chinese auto manufacturers as well and how you guys view them entering the US market at some point. So BYD has uh what six vehicles I guess, six electric vehicles. I'm looking at um their production for I believe this is 2022. Yep, so this was published August 7, 2022 inside of these by Mark Kane. Um I think this is year to date, I believe. Uh, or maybe not, maybe not. I got I to read through this a little bit better. But half of the vehicles that BYD produces are um, uh, hybrids, and then the other half are electric vehicles. So 80,000, 81,000 electric vehicles, 81,000, um, e, uh, um, sorry, hybrids. So I'm just curious. So if, if, if we extrapolate this out to a yearly number, I'm trying to figure out if this is monthly or quarterly or what. I, I can't find it. I don't um, think that'd be monthly. That's a lot for a month, isn't it? At the current rate, BYD is basically producing close to two million no, plug-in think, cars. No, that's per right. Year. That that is monthly. Yeah. Okay. So one hundred sixty-two thousand monthly in China, which is that's that's a really good, you know, number. You you extrapolate the BEVs out to um, a yearly. That's about a million, right? Eighty eighty thousand mm-hmm. times twelve. That's roughly a million. Yeah. Um, and I'm, I'm going to pull up their website real quick to see what what their product lineup looks like from a cost perspective, because these are like the automakers I'm still getting familiar with. I know what BYD is and I know what they're doing, but I haven't dug in nearly as deep as I did with Tesla. And I'm almost doing this like <laughs> live on the screen here. But how familiar are you guys with BYD? And do you guys think that this is going to be a true competitor to Tesla or are they going to enter the auto market? I don't know if you guys have any opinions on that, but I'm just throwing it out there because it, it does seem to be a topic in the comments. I think it's like the Android version of the phone. Yes, there are people who like Android and um, 
there are going to be people who use it and, and think China can produce some great EVs overall, just like there's some great Androids out there. Uh, but the number one selling phone profitability wise is the iPhone. And um, I think it's even even with China's lower labor costs um, and you know lower lower design fees, I think I think overall the Tesla's still going to make um, cars that are more profitable. Yeah, like I, 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 I hope BYD makes it. Honestly, um, I, I'm not as familiar with them. I've definitely like dug in. Uh, we, we had Taylor Ogan on our channel a little over a year ago, I think, and he's he's a big proponent of, of BYD and, and all the Chinese EV companies. Honestly. Um, so like I, I think we need more competition. Like Tesla can't, um, you know, just like scale up to a hundred million vehicles per year. Um, so I do think like there, there's just going to be some people who don't like a Tesla, who don't like you know the the modern, you know, contemporary feel of the inside, how minimalist it is. And so like I, I'm all for some other companies coming in and, and like supplying different you know niches that that, that Tesla isn't covering. Um, you know, one of the ones actually that I, I got to drive when I was at, um, uh, at the Monroe and Associates was there was this Chinese, um, EV, which I hadn't heard of before called Skywell. Um, and it was just like a pretty basic, um, it reminded me a lot of like a Jeep Cherokee or something like that. Uh, it wasn't particularly fast. Like the user interface wasn't like amazing, but they were kind of saying that it would be priced around $30,000. And I was like, okay, at that price point, I think they'd sell a lot of these. And it's like, you know, nice enough inside that I think like people who can't afford a $60,000 Tesla would say, yeah, like this is a pretty good alternative. Um, and so I, I really hope that there's some more entrants that kind of, um, you know, go with kind of more basic um, uh, entry po price entry points. Um, and the other thing that I thought was kind of nice about this was the interior didn't look like an EV. It, it looked exactly like, you know, you know, any kind of Jeep Cherokee or whatever that, that you would have driven in your life. Um, and so I think there are just a lot of people that are kind of intimidated by the touchscreen or just don't like it. Um, and, and I think having options for them is, is a great thing. I think if there's any sort of saving grace for traditional OEMs, I think it's if they revamp and go backwards in time and basically take their classic cars from, you know, the fifties and sixties and so on and turn them into electric products that are brand new. Like if you had some classic cars that are sold, that would be a, uh, one way to, you know, get some sales going for them. Yeah, I was like it's interesting. These, uh, these, uh, manufacturers from China, cause whenever they, um, uh, they translate to English, like the, so, some of the words they use are just so fast and like the first strategic SUV, what does that mean? <laughs> like, what is that? And I, I'm not, you know, I'm trying not, not to poke fun, but I'm like, you know, I'm just, it's very interesting sort of, you can tell all around health and pleasure yeah. cockpit. Cool. What? That, that sounds dirty. Mean? It does, doesn't it? <laughs> all around I don't think you should pleasure. be driving in a pleasure cockpit. Um, <laughs> no, this that, is the car you were talking about though, right, Matt? Yeah. Well, it's actually not. I mean, that's a way more kind of, Futurist modern design. Um, okay. I don't know which exactly what what model it was. Skywell's the company. Um, so, yeah, it was it was a more kind of basic. I, I don't know. I probably have to. I could probably dig it up in my pictures somewhere. But um, yeah, I, it was just like a very normal looking car, and it's like, oh, it also is electric, and that's I could see that being very attractive to a lot of like you know middle income or, or lower income people even. Um, especially with the tax credits like that's if you have like a $30,000 car in, in a $7,500 tax credit, which obviously being a Chinese EV that it wouldn't be. Um, but like, I, I just, 
I, I think we do need some some kind of lower lower price entry points if we're gonna um you know really kind of move the needle on, on ev adoption and i think that like a lot of people when they get an e like they say okay i can't afford the tesla yeah that's it um imperium i guess yeah doesn't have a frunk though yeah so it doesn't have a frunk but like you know if you're not a if you're not comparing it to a tesla maybe maybe you don't care so much but why wouldn't you compare it to a tesla because <laughs> you could like it if your budget, like my my brother in law, really wants a Tesla, for example, but like his but his budget just does not allow for that. So like you know he he's looking at all the different options and like he's looking at a Bolt and he's looking at you know these some of these other like some used vehicles too. And um, so like there's there's a really sizable portion of the car buying public who probably would buy a Tesla if it was priced a lot lower. Yeah, I agree. And my brother has a Bolt as well, and he loves it. Um, I've driven it a lot as well. It's a great. Great little car. Um, I, I think just as the price comes down, I think the number I heard is um, for every $5,000 lower you get, you get twice as many people who could afford it, right? And so um, Tesla's already sold out at this higher price. So they're working their way down. But like you're saying, if there's somebody who can come in at a lower entry point, um, maybe have shorter range and make other compromises like that, then obviously um, that's something that Tesla's not there yet. But um, that's also... I think there'll there'll be a huge step change if and when they start putting up the twenty five thousand dollar car. I think it's going to be more like twenty five thousand dollars of cost to Tesla, and I don't think they're going to even sell that car. I think if they figure out FSD, um, I, I think they're going to wait to figure that out first uh, FSD, and then basically use that as a fleet car. Got it. Yeah, I mean that, that, so, uh, that changes the whole dynamics. Pulling up Tesla price real quick, 299.10. We might break 300 here by the end of the stream. And the reason why it's going up is because of us. Obviously, it's because we're having this discussion, clearly. Obviously, that's what's going on in stock Why does it say 414 on there? Where? On the on the axis on the right. It's like 299, but it looks like it might have touched 414. Oh, that little purple box think, on the side. <laughs> I think I have uh I think I have some I drew some lines. Oh okay. I was doing some I, uh, I think. Yeah. I will say one more quick thing, like um, I know Kathy K just said GM is slow to launch the new $30,000 car. I think um, GM might launch a $30,000 car, but they'll sell like a thousand of them or 10,000. Like nobody's mass manufacturing that car. Like I said, nobody's ramping two million cars at $30,000 that are EVs uh, because they would basically go bankrupt. Like there's, there's little to no profit, like even at their higher priced cars. So like if you think of if they can't make money off of a $45,000 Mach-E, how are they going to make money on a $30,000 car unless the specs are just atrocious? Yeah. So I comment here from Yashu. Question, how are you all so good looking? I don't know who you're talking to, bro. Is it Noah or Matt? Which one? Both? Yeah. <laughs> he's got a mirror Welcome, up, Yashu. so he's looking at him. No. <laughs> <laughs> what a stud. Go subscribe. Hit that bid. Hashtag hit that bid. Go subscribe to this uh to this gentleman. Um, so does that mean we have no power hour at, at uh, like three o'clock today then since he already live streamed? Yeah, I think he's uh, I, I think he's traveling. I think he's traveling today. How dare um, you, Yashu. <laughs> yeah, no breaks, bro. Come on, it's Canada. Question. Uh, what are your thoughts on tax changes to reflect EV contributions to roads and infrastructure updates replacing gas tax contributions? This is an interesting question because um, it, is there a mechanism today where EV drivers pay for the roads uh, where we used to pay for the roads through gas? Like, how does that work? 
today? I don't know if either of you guys know the answer. I, I, I know have... a lot of... No, go, go ahead. Go ahead. No. Rock, paper, scissors. Uh, I was going to say, so I, I did hear that if you look at the last, since like the 90s, the amount of allocation because of, of gas tax has diminished. Um, and so even though that was true, you know, pre-90s, it's less true today where there's not as much tax being taken from the sale of gas to help with the road infrastructure. So that money's coming from another part of the budget. That's what I heard through a YouTube uh, source. So I, I don't have that verified or anything, but I don't know, Matt, do you have any other insight? Yeah, so um, I, I know one way that uh, a lot of states are, are trying to do that is by charging much higher registration fees, like annual re registration fees for EVs than for like comparable ICE vehicles. Um, so that's that's one way that I think is, is probably prudent. Uh, but like the other thing, just with the gas taxes, like that that system is broken already because you have politicians like co Congress, I believe, needs to um, approve the increases to the gas tax. And every time that comes up for the vote, they're like, no, I'm going to protect my constituents. Mm -hmm. There's no way I'm going to do that. Well, like you, you've also at the same time, Congress imposed these cafe standards, which greatly increased the fuel economy. So like the amount of tax that you're collecting per mile driven is really decreasing because you know you're you're forcing the automakers to be more fuel efficient but you're not raising the 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 price or the tax per gallon um mm. so like this that system's falling apart and congress doesn't have the political will to to address it so i i i don't have a great answer but it's like again it's just like my lack of faith in our political system right now i will also say that if you look at the budget overall of U.S. spending, I think it's still like 45 or 46 percent of all government spending is in the military. Um, and the stuff that usually gets put into the news and what we talk about, like in the media, is usually less than three percent of that budget allocation. So it's really kind of frustrating to me to see so much talk about so small of a percentage of U.S. spending comparative to the other things that are being spent. And another thing, my <laughs> my dad works for the government. Um, I, I have family and friends that work for the government. Um, I have a government contract for one of my projects at work. Um, it's not the most efficient system. They're, they're not designed to be efficient. They're designed to make sure there's checks and balances and everything is set up the way it's supposed to be. And um, so efficiency goes out the window and uh, with, with the government, unfortunately. Mm. There was another uh, question I want to address here. So have you heard rumors of Palantir and Tesla working together? If this is the case, what do you think this means for big data for Tesla outside of Dojo? Um, I have heard the rumor, but I would be surprised if Tesla decides to partner with a software company because they have the chops, in my opinion, to build anything that they need from a software perspective in-house. And I experienced this while I was working at the company. Tesla just wants to do everything themselves because they believe that it's the most cost-effective way of doing it. And if you're going to have all that talent anyway, why would you want to go out and spending a bunch of money on Palantir? And what's interesting about Palantir is I've actually, for, for the last couple of months, I spent quite a bit of time trying to figure more stuff out about that company because I was getting asked all the time, what do you think of Palantir? What do you think of Palantir? So I, I spoke with Tom Nash. I spoke with um, um, Codestrap. Uh, there were a couple other things I tried to do to really dig myself deeper to the company. Um, I, I just I don't know if that sort of solution makes sense for Tesla. It does seem like it's very costly and there's a giant learning curve for it. It does seem like a very good product, but the value proposition to Tesla is dubious. 
especially that they have the talent that they have internally where they can just whip something up themselves. So I don't know if what you guys think about that, but that's how I, I, I completely it. agree with that. I mean, like I think back to a couple of years ago when they they just rewrote the entire code for their for their Fremont factory. And I was like, they that seems like something that most companies would outsource. Like it kind of surprised me. Then I was thinking about it. It's like, well, yeah, like if you've got one, if you've got the incredibly capable software talent that Tesla has in-house, then it kind of makes sense to turn them loose onto solving and like optimizing all these different problems. And so you're getting real-time information instead of like somebody on the line saying, hey boss, like I ran out of bolts. Can I like get some help over here? <laughs> Not saying that that's what like the current state of affairs was, but like just having much better like optimization, like that that's Tesla's game. Like that's why they're so so profitable. So I would be completely shocked if if they actually like contracted with Palantir. The only scenario I can see that being the case is if there's something proprietary or something special that Palantir has that would save Tesla time, energy, um, and resources, I guess. But like to both of your points, um, the engineering side, the software side, Tesla has a great uh, leverage from that, like with their team. So yeah, unless Elon sees something similar to what Twitter might do for you know X.com, like I don't, I don't know if they would go with them. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I don't see it. I don't see it. And I know there's a lot of Palantir fans out there and they have a, a very strong community. I'm not saying the product is bad. I just, it's it's puzzling to me how that company is, is approaching their go-to-market strategy. And I think they're way too banking on themselves to be like a Tesla product where, you know, word of mouth will drive their sales. But the problem with that kind of product is that it's extremely complex and you're specifically working with very technical people to implement it. And most business owners are not technical. So I think that's why they're struggling to gain traction. It's because they're trying to sell non-technical people a very technical product. It's very, it's very, mm -hmm. and, and, but they're like super diligent. They're super, uh, they're very uh, sort of hunkered down on the fact that, well, we're just gonna allow our product to speak for itself because of, like, okay, well, you can't do that though. Cause it's very different. Like Tesla has the benefit of people can sit down in a Tesla and they get it. If you take a business owner, you put him in front of Palantir or Tesla or whoever, and then you put him next to Snowflake and any other product, it's going to take like 10 hours for them to understand what the value proposition is. Most, most humans don't have more than two hours of, of an attention span when it comes to that stuff, especially when you're not speaking their language. So I don't know. Um, Actually, I'm kind of concerned about Palantir's long-term survival, but that's just me. Sorry, Matt. I wasn't sure if you're going to say something. Yeah, no, I, 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 I definitely resonate with with everything you just said. I mean, like, I'm just thinking of my own days when when I was managing uh, a fleet of wind farms. Um, like at one point, I was just like doing so much of the analysis and like tracking by myself. I'm like, I, I need like some automated solutions to come in here. So I was talking with vendors, but it's just, it was such a, like a laborious process to like, see what the benefits were of each one of them and like vet them and then be like, okay, well, it's not like they're just going to do all the work for me. It's like, I've got to learn their system and like use their tools. And it, like, there's, there's drawbacks with doing that. So, I mean, just from my own experience, it's, it's hard to. I would I would imagine a company like Palantir is going to have a really hard time kind of sustaining a, a high growth rate that I think they probably need to sustain to justify their valuation. I agree, but I I don't I, I'm happy to be wrong on that. I'm not I don't have a very strong conviction level on that. Yeah, uh, Jack. It seems to me that delivery time has so much dropped that currently. Uh... Oh boy. It seems to me that delivery times have dropped so much that there are almost no sales happening in the U.S. 
delivery has shrinked with at least a month, which more or less means slow. Um, maybe so. Is this a comment, Jack, around delivery times being lessened? Hey, I'm, I'm I'm thinking that's the case. Um, Noah, you were talking about how uh, you have a model on order, um, but I, I don't know. If, yeah. I don't know if you guys can answer this question. I'm a little confused as to what. Sure. Jack is. I, th I think he's saying that like the orders, like there's less hitting the queue. So the wait time is lowering or shrinking. I think that's definitely going to be true. Um, so when I initially ordered my model wife for my wife, it was in March. So um, our delivery window was originally August and then they hit us up in July and they're like, Hey, it's ready. And I was like, Oh, I didn't uh, quite get um, my finances in order to pull the trigger yet. Is there any way we can delay this? And they basically said, yeah, we can, basically do 180 days after your order date, right? And so that's like August 4th or 3rd. So I hit them up like first day of August. I'm like, hey, we're ready to take order, the order. And they're like, okay, great. It'll be December. I'm like, oh, okay. I thought it was going to be a couple of weeks. Um, and so since then, um, they've given us a delivery window from like uh, November to December. Now it's rolled back a little bit from October 28th to December 9th. Um, but for my research, until you have a two two week window, you're really not as close as you think to when they'll start delivering it. Um, but to Jack's question and point, it might be changing, right? If there are people who are pushing off their um, deliveries and they're trying to figure out if they can hold out until, you know, January 1st for that $7,500 credit, <clears throat> it, it would definitely be worth it for a lot of people. So I'm kind of curious to see what Tesla's strategy is with that. Obviously, that's a little bit of inside baseball and we won't know um, unless we hear from somebody directly on how that's going to work. But yeah, I'll keep you updated as far as what I hear. Yeah, I wonder yeah, how much of it is just a reflection of higher production. Sorry, Matt, go ahead. No, I, I was going to say um, like two two thoughts on this. Um, one, um, they they do have this kind of end of quarter push, which they always do, where lead times are very long at the beginning of a quarter because they're either going to export um or they're they're going to like they're kind of building up cars to go to the east coast in the case of fremont um and then as they get closer like the delivery times especially if you're looking in california or close to the plant you know get a lot shorter um so that's just like a ebb and flow that I, that, that is seasonal that is i don't think should be surprising um but the other thing that i think is pretty interesting is is um troy Tesla has been doing some some pretty good deep dives on this lately um, and, and while it does definitely appear that the backlog is shrinking, it still is about three months in, in terms of production, which I think is, is kind of like the, the envy of, of the whole automotive industry, to be honest with you. Um, but the, the surprising thing to me is that like the U.S. backlog has remained relatively stable. Um, where it really is shrinking is in, is in China. And, and I think there it's, um, it, it's uh, primarily a, a reflection of the fact that you've got the, the the plant ramping so ridiculously high right now that they're just able to kind of chew through more orders and presumably they need to export less to Europe as Berlin ramps. Um, so I think that's that's uh, something to keep an eye on probably more closely than like does the does the uh, US credit starting in 2023 kind of hurt demand for Q4. In my mind, the bigger kind of strategic concern is, is there enough kind of demand in the Chinese market for, you know, like the, the run rate that that they're they're kind of cranking out right now? Or will they need to lower prices? Or are those just going to be exported to other markets? I mean, you've seen them starting to open up like Singapore and a couple other places I've seen recently. So I, I think Shanghai will remain the export hub. But um, it's unclear to me, like how, um, how, like where all that supply is going to go.
Yeah, I think basically Tesla's planning ahead and they probably already have a strategy around this, but my, my thoughts are the US production, they'll start to push in other places, whether that's Canada or maybe even, I don't know if they're considering shipping out from, you know, exporting from the US over the next three months, like just to help with that, um, you know, temporary demand shift, right? Whatever you want to call it. And then mm-hmm. as far as like China goes, um, I know their delivery windows have shrunk to like one to four weeks, right? So they're obviously delivering in in China and not ex- exporting from China as much. So but yeah, interesting conversation for sure. Yeah. And if, as far as that, if I could just jump on one more thing before we go to that, that question, I, I like Matthew yeah, in the comments says that prices will go down incrementally as supply increases, and then they, that will cause like an influx of orders. And I, like, I do think that that's likely um, when I'm modeling out, you know, my for my earnings for next year, I'm assuming price decreases starting in Q1. Um, that it's possible that that might not happen, at least in the US because of the tax credits. But I think for the rest of the world, it's probably a, a reasonable presumption. Um, so I, I think we shouldn't be shocked if and when that happens because Elon himself has kind of said that like that's what they need to do. Um, so I think that's that's a good thing, honestly. And, and I'm fully expecting that, you know, in the next six months or so. Yeah, I agree with that statement uh, fully. Uh, there was a question here that I had highlighted. Oh, From Teslafy, I think. Cybertruck one? Your thoughts on Cybertruck starting price. I, I did a whole video on this. I think it's 60, 80, and 100. So 60 is base, 80 is mid, 100K for the top range. Curious to hear y'all's thoughts. How do you think about it? 69, waiting. 420. There you go. Yes. <laughs> I've been waiting for this question. No, um, I'm, I am excited about Cybertruck for my business and what I do too. So I'm, I'm super curious about this question and how it shakes out. I think they're basically going to introduce a quad motor option that negates all previous pricing options. Um, and so the folks who have pre-orders, they're going to give them the offer or the option, I should say, to order that higher end Tesla. Um, I think it's going to be 120, something like that. Um, almost like a, t- a Cybertruck plaid, right? With a quad motor. Um, it's going to have incredible specs. <laughs> um, it's going to be tough for me to decide whether I- I'm going to go to that level or stick with the tri-motor that I hope for. To me, it's all about towing and range and, uh, for my business and what I do. I, I need that um, range. So the quad motor is less relevant to me because I think the torque and the towing capacity and everything from the specs from the tri-motor fit what my needs are. Um, but if I have like a two-year difference between ordering a quad and going with uh, the tri-motor that I had on pre-order. That would be a really hard decision, but I I think I would have to take the quad. Yeah, I mean, I I don't have... I haven't really thought about this in in detail. I think I've assumed something in the model. I don't don't know what I put in there right now, but um, like they're certainly going to increase from (laughs) when they were debuted. Was it 2019, I think? Um, mm-hmm. so yeah, that, that'll definitely, they'll definitely be higher. I mean, I, I think far as that, the, the kind of price points you laid out seem about right to me. Um, so it wouldn't surprise me if, if it's something like that. Yeah, I definitely think they're about right. I just don't think they're going to offer anything less than a hundred grand for, <laughs> they have yeah. a one point, what, 2 million on back order. So uh, as they ramp up, like I would be surprised if they pushed out more than half a million vehicles by like. 2025 2026 for the Cybertruck. like if you look at the ramp of the other um, models and, and 
how they've increased their specs. I wonder if that will be comparable or if Tesla will be able to increase that ramp of Cybertruck faster because there's no paint and how they've redesigned it from an exoskeleton. But I think at first it's going to, they're going to have harder challenges. And then over time, um, it'll be even more fast. You know, the, the, the curve will be much faster uh, for their output of Cybertrucks. I think what's interesting about the Cybertruck equation, though, is that Elon, and I don't know if this strategy has changed, but he did mention when they unveiled the truck that they have to figure out how to make the truck, uh, from a cost perspective, cost less to manufacture than a Model 3, but offer the same sort of um, um, utility as a pickup truck would. I have a chart that I pulled up. So this is the video that I did a month or two ago, whatever. So, so within those price points, how it would stack up to the most recent pricing for pickup trucks? And so this is sort of like an over overview of what it would look like. I do feel like if they go over a hundred thousand dollars, like what what would separate Cybertruck from say a Hummer EV, right? Or like a Hummer top of the line um, car. You know, so the EV edition one, the Hummer is 110,000. The EV3X is 104,000. It is a gigantic car that's has like a 200 kilowatt hour battery pack. It's 9,000 pounds and it's built very inefficiently compared to say a Cybertruck will. So why, why, and like I'm, I'm, and I'm half thinking, why would the Cybertruck even need to get to $100,000 for the plaid, except for the, for the reason that Tesla can, right? So, and I've been battling that thought too for a little while. It's like, is it really going to be a hundred thousand, or we're going to be surprised from a cost perspective once Tesla comes out and says, "Here's a truck for the people." It looks crazy and it has a lot of usable functions, and the top of the line model is sixty-five thousand or eighty thousand. I don't think that's going to happen, but but why? You know, why wouldn't it? Yeah, I'm, I'm hoping. I agree. I, I wish that's the case. I'm going to play devil's advocate. We'll have another friendly debate here. <laughs> How dare um, you? <laughs> my thought is um, just like with other Teslas now. So like you buy a Tesla, you could literally the, the same day you receive the delivery, you could turn around and sell that car back for five to $10,000 more than what you paid for it. So the first Cybertrucks, just like the first Rivians that came out, people are flipping them for 20, 30, 50% of this original price, right? And so mm. that money is going to those mark, um, um, what are they called? Markups? The, the flippers. The, yeah. the flippers, yeah. So, Arbitrageurs. Yeah. So if <laughs> since Tesla is a for-profit business, right, and we're shareholders, <laughs> it's, I think it's uh, almost their obligation to, to raise prices in, in some ways um, because of that. So if, if the demand is so high, um, and that's what we've seen, like, based off of the current models that are out, like they, they almost have to raise the prices, even though as a consumer, I would prefer to have my $70,000 $70, truck, which is way more than I've ever paid for a car to begin with, you know, but I also understand that um, the demand is just ridiculous. And um, any, I, I could guarantee, I can almost promise you that the first 20,000 trucks or whatever, like um, there's going to be a large percentage of people or I would say, you know, a significant percentage of people who are going to flip those cars for, you know, what, $150,000, $200,000, you know, because yeah. it's just such a mind-blowing truck, a new car, a new concept. Yeah. Yeah, I, I agree with what Noah said. I mean, I think they're going to try to price discriminate as much as they can. And um, it just makes sense in the in the early stages of a, of a product ramp, especially that you'll like you're going to have your worst margins at the beginning of that ramp. So it makes the most sense just from a financial standpoint to sell your kind of highest priced, highest margin products at that part of the ramp. 
Um, and then hopefully the kind of longer lead times will convert some people who maybe would have preferred the, you know, the, the like more slimmed down version to just opt for the higher one anyways. And so that's kind of a, a good way to price discriminate in, in a way that is very strategic and, and makes sense. So I, I, I suspect they'll do that. I mean, like you, you saw them kind of do that with Model Y. Like you were, remember like the rear wheel drive Model Y that they unveiled? You can't buy that in the US right now. It's like, it's only dual motor options. Um, and I think when their demand is just so high, that gives them the power to make those sorts of, of decisions that are, you know, just make the most business sense for them. And, and I, I think they'll, they'll do the same thing with Cybertruck. So then the, I guess the, the assumption here then is that Tesla could sell Cybertruck for 50% margin plus, if we're thinking about this correctly. Oh yeah. Right. Well, not the first models like Matt just said, because obviously they have once um, they're ramped. Yeah. Once they're ramped. And uh, honestly, um, I think basically they raise the prices until they hit that um, ceiling of what the demand is, right? And I, on a, I, I, I don't see the demand uh, running out, right? They're going to basically push that number up until they hit that that top, and then they're going to basically slowly bring the price back down to match the demand, if that makes sense. And as the price comes down, that increases the the, the demand as well. Does that make sense? Yeah, but I think I think what's interesting about that too, though, is that if you look at the pickup truck again, maybe maybe we shouldn't use like the current market to dictate what it's going to shape out to be. But but pickup trucks generally have been the profit drivers for uh, automakers. Like the reason why Ford is in business is because the Ford F one fifty makes them a ton of money. So if if uh, Tesla is going to take that market and they're going to put in a, a manufacturing process that's going to reduce the cogs by 15 to 20 percent for that vehicle and then they're able to charge a tesla premium why wouldn't that get you to 50 percent margin for the life of the vehicle right unless oh, yeah. unless i'm thinking about this incorrectly yeah i mean it really comes down to like if they could produce um say five million cyber trucks and the demand is you know say it, it is five million or not like if the demand is 10 million and then obviously they can keep those higher margins but i mean I guess the other thought too is like if there is no true competition, like the Ford Lightning could only produce say five hundred million. I'm sorry, five hundred thousand vehicles. But even with compared- competition, Ford F one fifty is still generating a ton of margin, right? I mean, the truck market it has a lot of competition, but they're still the highest margin getters in the in the mm-hmm, car lineup. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I mean to interrupt, but like no, that's, no worries. You yeah, know, yeah, yeah. They could still have margin and still sell, but if they're selling five hundred thousand versus Tesla's five million, you know, like I think that's that's the difference there and. Really, the bottom line for me is over the next 10, 15 years, like the transition from gas cars to EVs, um, the rate of turnover for those cars is going to be higher. So I think every car, despite its price point, is going to be sold by um, the people who can make it. Matt, do you have any thoughts? Yeah, I mean... Basically, I've just been mulling over in my head 50% margins and like... (laughs) The valuation nerd in me wants to say it's not possible. Like <laughs> when, when I was doing investment banking, we were selling these automotive companies for four times the EBITDA, which is like ridiculous. I mean, it's like commodity pricing. So that's like kind of where my background comes from. So just thinking about like a hardware product with a fifty percent gross margin, it's 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 insane. Like I, I think it's easy for us to like throw around these numbers and just be like, well, yeah, it's Tesla. It's Elon Musk. Like the man can dude can land rockets on the ocean. Of course, like 50% gross margins are possible, but that's, that's like, that is so nuts. Like that's why wall street isn't valuing Tesla the way that we think it should be right now. Cause 
like a lot of the bears that, that I've heard talk about this, they're like, well, I just don't understand the numbers. Like the margins, something about them just doesn't make sense. And so they either assume there's like fraud or I that agree. it's like something gimmicky <laughs> or like, and, and like, I have some sympathy for that because I can hardly wrap my head around, around these numbers that they're putting out. So like, honestly, I've just been like for the last two minutes been like, why, why is it reasonable that, or why is it possible that Tesla will not have 50% gross margins on Cybertruck? And I'm thinking about the exoskeleton and the way that they're going to put those things in there. And I'm thinking about the pricing power that they're going to have and the fact that it's already going to be in this gigafactory that they've already, you know, built. And it's just, I, I can't come up with a rational reason why the, the price or why the margin would be less than 50%, which is kind of surprising to me because I, I like to think like I'm reasonably a- conservative and like a realist in, in this camp. Yeah, so let's do like a very simple, just mathematical exercise here, right? So this this is how I think about it. And again, I could be a moron for thinking about it this way, but let's let's go through it, right? So Model Three, the real wheel drive car is forty six nine ninety. What do you think the cost of this car is based on your on your valuation model? What thirty well, five or pull it somewhere up? in that range? Yeah. Well, I, I just went through this exercise with Emmett yesterday, so it's, <laughs> the I can just tell you what I put in there. Isn't yeah. it the reported margins like eighteen percent, or is that incorrect? I, I, from what I remember, in some report somewhere, I, somewhere around eighteen percent is eighteen percent margin. Okay, so time I, points. I, I don't know, Matt, back me up here because I, that's just a number that I, it comes to the top of mind. I don't know if that's accurate. I wasn't. I'm not sure where you where you got that. Honestly, um, it. So I mean, I'll just tell you what I have in in my number right now for Fremont Model Three, which is like one of the worst gross margin product products out there. Let's use that. Um, so I, I'm showing 21% right now with with my estimates. Okay, 21% margin. So 46,990 yeah. times what's 0.79. That's uh, so a cost of 37.1. So it costs Tesla to. The cost to Tesla to make a Model 3 is 37122 And if we take Elon's statement of we need to make Cybertruck at or lower the cost of a Model 3, let's just give him the benefit of the doubt and say at the cost of Model 3 because they're very good at executing. That's uh, So it will cost to manufacture a, a Cybertruck about $37,000 at this level. What would it take to get to a 50% margin? What is the price? So divided by 0.5, right? 74000 Mm-hmm. Did, I, did I do that math correctly or no? Or yeah. Do it yeah I mean, it's just multiplied by yeah. two. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Right. So yep. 74,000. So if the ASP of Cybertruck is 74,000, that's a 50% margin. Do you think Tesla is going to be able to sell Cybertrucks at an ASP of 74,000? seems like yes. Yeah. Yeah. It seems like yes. Um, right. It's, it's crazy. Absolutely. Like that's, that's crazy. Yeah. <laughs> it's and, hard and to keep argue in mind, sure. like, like if, if you were to go with the, the Shanghai Model Three, it'd be even less. Like that one, like by my model, the the cost of goods sold there is uh, like thirty three thousand, or actually no, twenty nine thousand on like the base version. So call call it thirty thousand. So then like sixty thousand to get a fifty percent gross margin. If you were to Ishan's give telling me I got for... the wrong math. I don't think so though. Well, so what, be... it was uh, thirty seven times two, right? So is that a little Ishan, over 70? If I'm right, Ishan, you owe me a million dollars, bro. Let's do it. So 74,000, <laughs> right? Minus 37,000 for the cost divided by, right? Divided by 74,000. Sell price minus cost divided by sell price. 50% margin. Right? If it's a 50,000, 
here we're like blowing each other up on live here uh fifty thousand. this is the cost of goods sold times times two yeah so it's yeah divided by fifty thousand. so a fifty thousand dollar sell price would be a margin of 26 percent yeah mm -hmm. i think ishan you're thinking of markup not margin you might be thinking of a different uh formula just a heads up and only give Ishan a yeah, little bit of crap right now because he's yeah, part of our Discord and he's been on before. So, <laughs> yeah, a fifty percent yeah, gross margin is a hundred percent markup, which is kind of crazy to think about it that way. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. I was gonna say we're basically calculating a single point in time, whereas like obviously there's probably a ramp up and a ramp down, and then there's so many factors to consider that really weigh on the positive side of Tesla, like getting butts and seats that's going to be a multiplier the more people who experience a tesla are going to want to buy a tesla the lowering of the price right every five thousand dollars doubles the amount of people who could afford it as they scale up both the cybertruck and the other products right the cost per product that they build is going to uh substantially lower each time and then the icing on the cake is the engineering factor of tesla of like every single component every process is you know in hours of iteration not years like other oems yeah Kathy is blaming me for putting the calculator up in the comments. That I just want me. to clear the record. I had nothing to do with that. <laughs> I'm too self-conscious of my nerdiness to, to put a calculator up on the screen. I was just going to do the mental math, but Farzad, Farzad wanted to do it, so blame him. It was me. It was me. The less buttons it has, the me. easier it is for me to get. No. Yeah. <laughs> I think yeah. it's important to note, like, like, just going back to this 50% margin thing, though, like, yeah, yeah. how can they even do that? Like, the elimination of a paint shop is a really really big deal in in the cost of goods sold so my, my brother actually works for a company that does like paint filtration services to automotive suppliers and um, so he's like familiar with with that and it one it's like almost always the limiting factor to your to your production rate in in your factory so like a couple of years ago on one of the earnings calls elon was talking about how annoyed he was that like the the production rate was so slow he's like if you think about like how fast these cars are coming off the line, it's like Granny and her walker could actually go faster than we're, we're getting out new cars. And he's like, we should really be pumping them out um, where we need to take into account wind resistance of the parts going through the assembly line. That should be the limiting factor, which is like, like that sounds aggressive, Crazy. right? <laughs> yeah. But I think he's got he's got a point. So like, if you're you're eliminating like not only a huge like uh, cost of the painting and the huge limiting factor on your production rate, but just like a massive footprint for for the paint facilities. So that's like a huge elimination of costs. Um, that I think it's 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 hard to over like because there's going to be more raw materials. Like the weight of the Cybertruck's going to be a lot heavier, uh, so the cost is going to have to be made up on non-material components. Yeah, and I I forget the exact details of the conversation, but I know when VW was looking at um, what Tesla was doing with their line and how fa how much faster they were able to produce cars, like in the same time frame, like th they were like, oh, yeah, we need to figure out a way to get this faster for sure. And real quick, uh, I was um, Googling the average pickup truck price for a uh, pickup in the United States. Um, uh, a full-size pickup truck, which is what the Cybertruck would be. The 2020 average price of a new pickup truck was 38000 We saw truck prices go up last year, making the average cost of a new pickup truck 41000 So to get to $75,000, so, so Cybertruck would have to carry a 20... What, sorry, I can't even do math. $34,000 premium we'll over the, the existing... Yeah, right? Let me see. 1 minus 2 <laughs> equals... Uh, so the question becomes, if, if Cybertruck was able 
if so the assumptions are if they are able to get the Cybertruck cost to be at the same level of Model 3, which Elon has come out and said. And if you really think about it with the Model Y, the amount of cost that we're able to take out of that car, they've openly said Model Y costs less to produce than the Model 3, yet it's a larger car, right? So obviously Cybertruck is larger, but it's gonna have a lot of innovations around the cost to produce the car. So if it does come at $37,000 some odd to produce a Cybertruck, and Tesla is able to carry a premium of $34,000 above the average truck market, then it stands to reason that Tesla will achieve 50% margins with Cybertruck. So the question becomes, what will Tesla offer from their perspective to get that $34,000 premium over the average selling price of a truck, right? That's that's how I think about this equation. And so what I'm curious to see once they unveil the, the truck fully is I'm gonna look at that car and be like, is there $34,000 extra premium on this car and how they're selling it versus the rest of it? And the reason why I think they could do that is if you take Model Y as an example, Model 3, there's been a lot of data around people upgrading their cars. It's the iPhone effect, right? The people are willing to go up the price ladder to purchase that car because it's status, value for money, um, and brand, so on and so forth. And this is without the the variable of FSD, obviously. So I'm, I'm excited. I think 50% Cybertruck margins, why not? especially especially for the last year, first year or two. And I'm curious if that gets achieved, what is the storyline become for Tesla? Tesla becomes first manufacturer ever to produce a 50% mass market vehicle, 50% uh, margin mass market vehicle. How is the market going to react to that? You know? Well, Do I sound too much like Yaman right now? <laughs> no, yeah. yeah. I mean, I, another trend that's I've, I've heard of and seen is like, so when... People used to finance cars. It was for like 36 months. And now the window of that time has expanded, right? As people can um, basically pay over 72 months or whatever, like a, a longer period of time. And, um, and with electric cars, it's it's a little bit more justified, I guess you could say, um, because mm -hmm. the longevity of a car, right? So like a gas car might last 150 to 200,000 miles where like an electric car, the components are going to last a lot longer. You might need a battery refresh. Yes, that's true in you know seven or 10 years or something. But overall, it's going to last a lot longer. Um, I said this on the last time I was on the show, but for me, the gas savings for the Cybertruck versus my uh, regular truck pays for itself over the life of the truck. And then obviously there's the repa repairability of, it, of maintenance costing 10% of what a regular gas car would cost. Yeah. Um, real quick, I do want to clarify. Somebody said Tesla will not start with 50% margin. I agree. So when I said first year or two, what I meant is first year or two after they're ramped. So let me clarify that. I appreciate that call out. Thank you. Uh, last question. We're almost at two hours. These freaking conversations fly, man. I don't know how you guys feel about this, but I'm like, man. Uh, my boy, Nick, Nicholas Gibbs, Investing Against the Grain. Go subscribe to his channel. It's awesome. I met him uh, and his lovely wife in person when they came up for um, Investor Day. So it was awesome meeting you in person, Nick. Uh, question, RoboTaxi unveil at day for the la uh, at AI day for the last question. What do you guys think about that? I think I think there's a chance, but I'm curious to hear y'all's thoughts. I I think they'll talk about uh, full self-driving. I think that needs to hit people's uh, world first. And I think RoboTaxi is one of those things that I don't think Elon wants to talk about publicly until he's ready for it to happen. 
um, just because of all of the publicity he's gotten behind other announcements and delays and stuff. I, I think he's starting to change the way he communicates with people. And um, even though he loves to talk about it, and love, loves to explore it. I, my personal opinion would be he's going to hold out until they can mass produce the the uh, $25,000 model. And to me, that means the next generation of the factories and they, they have floor plans built out for if they go to uh, expand Shanghai or expand uh, Giga Austin or even go to Canada, right? There's talks about that as well. So I think the next couple of factories are when they're going to start doing robo taxis. I, I had a, a conspiracy theory kind of take place in my head as this, as this, as you were asking this question as far as odd. So he, he, here's here's what I was thinking. I'll, I'll just kind of stream of consciousness this. Um, yeah. AI in Chinese is I, which is the, the word for love. And if you remember, the poster had the, the little love part on the robot arms. And then I was thinking the mm. Chinese design studio was launched like two years ago, right? Something like that. And they said they were going to de develop a new a new car specifically like with the Chinese aesthetics. So maybe they introduce like the Chinese. Maybe it is the robo taxi that they were developing there. It's it's not clear, um, but maybe there's some sort of like unveiling of a new product that is leaning on AI heavily and that is related to the Chinese market. That's that's my kind of. Uh, yeah unpacked like just stream of consciousness thought that that i had just now okay interesting so you're officially predicting that tesla will unveil a new vehicle at ai day two is that what you're saying and officially. i will donate a million dollars to the charity of your choice if i'm wrong that's what i agree <laughs> Perfect. to. Yeah. <laughs> you heard I it love first <laughs> my favorite thing about Matt is that he'll just lean so hard into the joke that's being made and just like freaking take over, dude. It's so funny. I like that. Yeah, what is that? Like, that, yeah. In in like uh, improv, they do the yes and. It's like that that whole scheme. Like, yeah, I'm yeah. gonna go with what you said, and I'm gonna take it a step further for sure. It's fun. Life, life's life's too short it. to to not have some fun. Yeah, yeah. I I think I don't think it's just gonna be bot. I mean, a bot's going to take a lot of of um, attention for sure. When I was speaking with uh, James and Chuck yesterday, James was very excited about the the dojo uh, thing and what they're doing from a chip side. So I think that's obviously mm -hmm. going to be part of it as well. Um, but I, yeah, I do. I don't know. I just feel like Rebel. I, I think it's time. The last time Tesla has unveiled a product that you can reserve, where you can put money down, was November 2019 with the Cybertruck. We're almost three yep. years removed. It's time. It's time for something new that people can, I don't know if it's this event or another one, but yeah. Yeah, I do think, so like getting to more tangible predictions, I do think that, you know, they'll talk more about Dojo. That seems pretty obvious to me. I think, uh, I do think, I agree with, I think it was James was saying that they're going to introduce hardware for, like it is, it's time for that for sure. So I, I would be surprised if they don't talk about whatever the next generation chip is and possibly some cameras too. Um, I think probably some cameras is kind of my take. So I, I think it's like my takeaways, there's, there's going to be a lot of material in there. Like there's probably going to be like a three hour thing and I'm going to feel really dumb by the end of it because they're going to be talking about yes. like all these like super complicated things that are just way over my head. So um, I think there will be a lot of unveils, but I, I agree with you in in kind of the direction that you're leaning Farzad that there's going to be some kind of surprise towards the end because um, it, it does seem like it's about time, like three years um and my my conspiracy theory of like a chinese design like that that could be i would love yeah, it 
I think the majority of it will be about the bot and that will take a big chunk, yeah. chunk of it. And then a chunk of it might be about uh, full self-driving. Um, and then they'll announce maybe one or two factories. Okay. Factories. Whoa. Okay. All factories, right. Factories. So that's that's really that going coming. out there. Damn. Okay. So we yeah, have you on the hook. Bots. Yeah. Who yeah, are yeah. you going to donate your million dollars to? My one million dollars <laughs> goes to the tech relief fund of Farzad. He he takes this money and then gives it to people who are in need of tech, like cameras and microphones. Perfect. <laughs> I love that. Every single one of my guests will get hooked up with the best camera mic there you go. possible. Yeah. And they'll get a trillion megabit internet, which Matt, I think, needs a little bit. I'm just kidding. <laughs> oh. I, are you my on my Wi-Fi last Matt? year has just been technical issues. Yeah, I'm, I'm on Wi-Fi. <laughs> There's your problem. <laughs> we'll give you four uh, starting satellites. That way you can have four times the internet. <laughs> <laughs> four times. Is that how it works? I know it doesn't. Anyway, thank you, gentlemen. Thank you very much. I really appreciate you guys joining me today on this Friday. Uh, Matt Smith from Good Soil, Noah Sargent, part of the community. Thank you all in the in the comments for taking part of this awesome conversation. Thank you, Juju Gang, for coming over from Yashu's stream halfway through. Uh, yeah, really appreciate everybody on. Matt, Noah, any last words before we uh, sign off? No, just ahead, blueberries Matt. aren't juju. <laughs> Damn it. Thanks for having me, Matt. It was a pleasure meeting you, and it was a lot of fun. Yeah, this was great. Thanks, Farzad. This is uh, always fun to, to talk with you, and I love doing these. It's my pleasure, man. Thank you so much for coming on. And yeah, we'll see you guys around next week. Uh, we'll have fun stuff. I still got to plan the week for next week, but I'm sure there's going to be some fun stuff. Take it easy, everybody. Have a great weekend. Peace out. Thank you. And broadcast. Here we go.